Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard the UK's The Chisel. The track is Unlawful Execution. The record is Retaliation. If you listen to this podcast, if you listen to The Rule of Three, if you've not been hiding under a rock, 2021 was absolutely dominated by releases by this band and the bands associated with them like Chubby and the Gang and Boss and I just wanted to have something really jump off the new year this thing came out around Thanksgiving so it's relatively new if you're like I haven't heard this yet but to me it's one of the best LPs that have come out I can't believe we're saying last year but it's last year 2022 here we are baby happy new year as I said previously I wanted to have something really special to open the new year up People have been now roughly almost two full years in a state of mind and a state of chaos with all this bullshit COVID going on. And the podcast for me was one of the outlets because of COVID. And as I said later on to my guest tonight, I'm glad that I waited or didn't rush out to do this episode with him and have this conversation because I wasn't ready as a podcaster and serendipitously the timing worked out perfectly what you're going to listen to tonight is already immediately one of my all-time favorites if not my favorite and I'll get more into that later I want to get into some show stuff and then you know the proper guest intro but please support the chisel Absolutely incredible group of bands that they're in, but just good guys. The music's fucking fantastic, and can't wait to see them. Can't wait to literally throw Joe McHenry across the fucking floor at least 10 times during their set. So we got some shit going on uh, with the FYA pre-show. 100 Demons was unable to make the show happen, and Shadow Realm is now playing which is, for me, exciting and and an honor to play with all of my friends and to be a part of the FYA pre-show. And that weekend's going to be fantastic. As I said it before, FYA is 100% happening. It's in Florida. If you're listening and you're like, well, what about COVID? Wear a fucking mask. This show is January 7th on Friday. So, wow, six days from now. The Brass Mug in Tampa, Florida. Shattered Realm, Section Hate, The Killer, Colin of Arabia, Skinhead, Contention, and Pain of Truth. You can get tickets at floridamind.com. That's the FYA pre-show. FYA will have tickets at the door. Um, People have been selling tickets online for lower than face value. Go to Twitter. Go anywhere. You'll see people who are concerned about COVID. But the show will continue. Nobody's canceled as of yet. And it's going to be fucking fantastic. FYA, starting off 2022 properly. Philadelphia Hardcore Shows, we've got some shows. I'll keep it succinct so we don't have a giant long 20-minute intro. This Wednesday, Year of the Knife, Shackled, Despise from Scotland, Cruelty from Japan. We're not allowed to put it on the flyer, but I can say on my podcast, Pain of Truth. We'll be playing at the Underground Arts. And they're, it's all ages shows, but they're going to be checking for vax. Make sure you have your ID. It's club policy, so there's not too much we could do about it. 
just follow the uh, the policy. We have more shows than that, but those are the two closest ones. Make sure to go to phillyhgshows.com to check out what we've got going on. And it's 2022, so get ready to hear more of this hardcore talk. Because, yes, I've heard a lot of people ask me, is it happening? Are you going to still do it? And it would take something like a volcano explosion and killing everybody who's ever worked on This Is Hardcore to end the reign of This Is Hardcore. We're not going anywhere. We're fucking doing it. So make sure that you are aware. Stick to the social medias. You can follow any of this at phillyhcshows.com or the Instagram or the Twitter. You can follow the Joe Hardcore. You can follow This Is Hardcore Fast on Instagram and Twitter. It's not hard to keep up, but and also listen to the podcast because we're gonna have, you know, talks about it every week. Now, I hope you enjoyed the Christmas show. It was fun for me. A little random. Put some new people out there. Heard some voices of friends who did absolutely to me important things for the fest, but kind of maybe no one knew about. So it was good. But Eddie Leeway had to go back into the hospital this week after we had him on the show. And this is why I, I, I stay in touch with this guy. He's back in dealing with a fungal blood infection. And it, it's getting treatment now. So he's got a chest port for chemo treatment. And it got infected. And so he's going to be in this hospital for a while. So this whole time I've been saying, hey, support and help out Eddie Leeway. Support and help out Roger. This is real shit, man. These are real people from the hardcore scene. They pioneered, paved the way. And with age comes these kind of moments. And, you know, these unfortunate circumstances like cancer. Also, Mark from Fuming Mouth. He's got cancer. The GoFundMe's been doing well. But our job in this community is to support our own because sometimes the people in our community, this is what they have. This is their family. This is where we grew up and we're going to have to rely on each other to get through these hard times. So if you could support these GoFundMes, that'd be absolutely fucking fantastic. On to our guest. I don't need to tell you anything about his history, you know, explain what bands he was in because by now everybody should know who Rob Lind is. He was, for a long time, going under white trash Rob. But when you get to your mid-40s, I think you can let go of some of your guard. And, you know, Rob is someone who, not only did I love his music, but I had a really awesome experience being on tour with him and learned a lot about his mannerisms and his overall presence as a human being. And I think that the average blood for blood fan probably has him pigeonholed into something different than what he is. Um, these are one of these Hail Marys where he has his own podcast. It's called the Nodcast. He's got his own stuff going on. But obviously, you know, not only just being friends with Rob, but just respecting his body of work, knowing that people love his band and love what his music has done for them. I was hoping it would be an interesting conversation at the least. And instead, it ended up being a lot deeper. We went hard on things that probably were hard for him to discuss, but he is an absolute fucking champion. He bared a lot without being petty or getting into the granular details of he said, she said. 
And this is undoubtedly the reason why I rushed to make sure we start off 2022 listening to Rob, his story, his feelings, his interests, his influences. And as of right now, this is the best podcast I've ever recorded. And I really hope you guys enjoy this one. And happy new year. Let's fucking go. You are officially being listened to by the NSA. Welcome to This Is Hardcore Podcast once again. This is an amazing friend of mine. I don't even need to say what bands he's in because you know his name. You know what he's about. Rob Lynn, thank you for coming on This Is Hardcore Podcast. Dude, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Like all things, when we start these things off, I always like to get a base of where the person that we have on the show came from, not just geographically, but like what their background was, their family, the kind of like records that you remember growing up, like how the hell and what influences in the music as you're growing up as a kid and things around you made you tick and who you are, what you are. Sure. Um, any, anywhere particular want to start? I yeah, mean, we'll I start at the beginning, start at the beginning, like, Hey, where you guys grew up with the, like what you uh, like the first time you started thinking about music, like how that was in your household, that kind of deal. Sure. Um, my entire family um, my, is from uh, Charlestown, Massachusetts and South Boston, Massachusetts. For those unfamiliar, and I'd, I'd be surprised if you're unfamiliar, those are the, the towns that have been the setting for the, the Hollywood circle jerk Irish gangster revival, um, you know, jerk off session of movies that's happened over like the past, like they, they basically since like 2000, it was like the town with Ben Affleck that was set in Charlestown, the departed that was set in South Boston, uh, What's that other one? Uh, Mystic River. That one's set in yeah. Charleston. That was the, that was actually the only good one. That was the only one that came at least remotely close to cap- capturing like the the mindset of the town itself. Um, because everybody gets hung up on the, the the thing that Charlestown was famous for was um, armed robbery. There were tons of bank robbers came out of Boston, and it had for a long time, for about thirty or forty years, it had the highest unsolved murder rate per capita, not murder rate per capita. And Charlestown's tiny. It's only like a square mile or like two square miles, but it's got about 150,000 people in it. And we all know each other. And we're all fucking related. Like, like, like fucking, uh, uh, the Dagon worship is from Innsmouth and fucking, uh, HP Lovecraft. HP Lovecraft. Yeah. Everybody's related to everybody else. Everybody's pale and surly. Nobody talks to outsiders, but that's where my whole family's from. My father's side's all from, uh, they did City on the Hill is another one. Uh, fucking uh, uh, Gone Baby Gone. Like all these fucking movies, they're, they're based on the two towns where my entire family is from, like period. No outsiders. At least everybody came from there. Some of them have moved off into the suburbs and shit, but um, they, the movies get hung up on the armed robbery and the unsolved murder rate. And Fair enough. That's what it was famous for. But what I was, I did a, I did a video on this with my brother um, on my own YouTube channel. I call it a podcast. It's not a fucking podcast. It's just videos I put up. But um, we talked about what Charlestown was really about. What it really is, is a fucking hive mind. It's, it's, it's like a single collective conscious consciousness. Um, Everybody thinks the same dresses, the same talks, the same acts, the same. And if you don't, you are punished and pilloried. And they don't accept anybody from out of the town. So that's where I grew up. Uh, and my father and my mother and all that shit, too. First, we did a couple of years when we were younger in the suburbs, when my parents first got married. 
And um, he had like a nice job. He was a mailman. We lived in like the suburbs for a couple of years, but then we came back. So from like age three to seven or eight, I was in Melrose. And then we came back to Chowstown. Now, at that age, um, obviously your brother Mark is also uh, a musician, has an insane record uh, label, just also a really awesome guy. So which one of you guys, or do you remember which one of you guys were getting hip to music first? Like, what was the stuff that your parents were playing? Like, what was this? What was that kind of thing happening that you were getting hip to growing up? Yeah, I was the first one to get into music. In fact, um, Mark and I had this incredibly, I mean, I guess it's just fucking older brother shit, but we used to beat the, I used to beat the shit out of him and he'd sneak up behind me and hit me on the back of the head with like a piece of wood or something every couple of months just to remind me that he wasn't completely defenseless. So we had a real like, you know, we were, we were toxic relationship. I guess it's just all the brothership, but we were both going through the shit that our family was going through when I was taking it out on him. And so we didn't get along and it was actually over music that he and I became friends. I, I got into it first. And I remember one day I was in my room listening. I was like 12 or something. And me, like I said, me and my brother didn't get along. Like I was, like, you know, bullying older brother to him. And um, he knocked on the door and said, what's that you're listening to? It doesn't sound like that usual fucking kill your mother music you listen to, because I'd usually be listening to Slayer or some shit like that. And how uh, did you even get into Slayer? Well, how, like, 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 able to take it all the way back. Like, how did you even get into that? Well, uh, I, I don't know if you wanted to circle, but my parents, no, oh, wait, we take it all the way back. I mean, like, we've had guys say, hey, my dad listened to the 50s. And then I heard this, like, it, it's never the hardcore thing. Like, it seems to be the pejorative that so many people are either exposed to something like a Black Sabbath. Some people even mention Ramones. I mean, we've got guys that are first generation hardcore guys who are finding music in the early 80s or 70s. So we could go all the way back before even the cool music. I always like to get the perspective of where the musical brain, especially for someone like you who's acclaimed for writing. Like, where did you get your influences? So, I mean, we could take it back to some stuff that you remember as a kid, like four years old on the ground. Like, for me, I said, I used to sit on the floor and my mom had either Parliament Funkadelic, Earth, Wind and Fire or Ozzy Ozzy records. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I saw first. And then that became the influence. We've talked about it on the show. So that's where we go to. It's not like, oh, I listen to Slayer. Like, take me all the way back, baby. Oh, yeah. Some of my earliest memories. My father was a, 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 a fanatic music fan and he listened to literally everything you just listed. He had Black Sabbath albums. I remember volume four, the record. Uh, with that, I think it was Ozzy on the front doing the fucking Ozzy pose. Uh, he loved fucking funk, uh, George Clinton. Um, he loved fucking uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. Uh, my both him and my mother, they were both like rock and roll kids, uh, 60s rock and roll kids. Like they were like awesome. kind of hippies, basically, except they weren't allowed to be hippies because if you're from Charlestown in South Boston, you can't be a hippie. Yeah, but you, you can't stand out. Music. What's that? You can't stand out. You got to keep it like every down the You better believe it, boy. Especially then, especially then, there was a lot of shit going on. Uh, you know, social upheaval going on at that time. There was forced busing. There was the racial shit going on. So, little towns like that in in Boston closed ranks. Uh, but they listened to the music. They just couldn't dress like John Lennon, but they could listen to John Lennon. So they both my parents were big into the Beatles, uh, Led Zeppelin. I remember hearing all this shit when I was a kid. My father veered off more into like Sam and Dave, Marvin Gaye. My mother in the 70s got tired of going to rock clubs and getting hit on by fucking, uh, you know, uh, skeevy dudes. Uh, so she started going to gay bars because no one had hit on her. 
Um, and she got huge into disco. So she turned into basically dancing queen from like the yeah. 70s. Uh, but then she still loved like the clash and shit like that. Like that was one of her favorite bands. So I remember all of that shit. And I remember I also uh, played classical piano from the age of like three until I was like, whenever my parents split like six or seven, maybe I think it was. Were, seven. They, were they musical or is that just something that you were told like you should learn? Like, how did you end decide? You better believe you remember? I'm told I, 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 that was not, it's not a pleasant memory for me. Um, I, won't, I don't want to get into it because I'm, I'm. Yeah, I'm, that's okay. Better, better relationship with my family now but um the piano was something that uh i was somebody was living vicariously through me and i was kind of being pushed to do it and i took it real serious i was very good at it by the time i could do fur elise by the time i was like five which is like the yeah Beethoven song da, 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 da. yeah exactly that one that I, the, yeah i could do about a, the first third of moonlight sonata fur elise isn't difficult i can still pick through that even kind of now i mean it wouldn't sound good but you'd recognize it but Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, that is a fucking killer. That's a delineator. I could pick through the first third of it when I was a kid. I couldn't do it fast because my hands weren't big enough. Because you need to have like, you know, Bootsy Collins hands like that wide. But um, yeah, that was all the stuff that I was surrounded by. And I did love music. I just wasn't aware that I loved it. It was just something. Background you know, noise. And there was a lot of chaos in the home. Yeah. So it, didn't per- it didn't permeate into your psyche. Like, I actually really like this. I, I I, I do, and I and I say the same thing. Like when I tell you, I sit on the floor. I can remember the visions, like of what I was looking at. My house was chaos. Oh but, yeah. But when you have this kind of like that that foggy background, you remember the records on the floor. You remember toys on the ground. I remember getting the thrillers, uh, the Thriller forty five as a child, and that's the stuff that I remember because everything else about growing up was shit. And it took me till be later on before the fog lifts and you're actually starting to be cognizant of music that you enjoy. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of things swirled together. You just mentioned a lot of them. And I remember the thriller record as well. Me and my brother, Mark, I mean, he's going to be embarrassed. I say this, I don't care. I have no shame anymore, but we would listen to 45s and put on like fake concerts when we were like three with like tennis rackets and shit. That's awesome. Yeah. Like we were big into it. Like thriller was like, that was a cultural phenomenon. You remember that, like yeah. Michael Jackson shit. They had stores opened up in my neighborhood selling Michael Jackson shit, like just wallets and keychains, and it's fucking crazy. But there's a lot of other tension with the music too, because there was the piano thing, which I was doing to please somebody else. And it was an unpleasant thing in my life. It was this really dark, ominous thing. So the minute my parents split, I was like, fuck this. I stopped touching the fucking thing. I, it was an act. It was like my first act of rebellion. I ain't playing that fucking thing. I stopped playing sports. That was another source of a lot of like contention and pain for me, or, or anguish. I rejected all of that shit. And then I moved to Charlestown. And like I said, Charlestown's really conservative. It, that doesn't cover it. Like I said, the Third Reich would have been glad to have the uniformity of hive mind that Charlestown did. Like I said, everybody thought the same, dressed the same, talked the same. You had to play street hockey. Yeah. <laughs> the main thing yeah. was the dress code. You had to dress and look the same. If you weren't wearing like, like a you know a three hundred dollar Ralph Lauren jacket and fucking, uh, what are those? What are the colored Kangol uh, Adidas shoes called? Uh, gazelles. Yeah. Take your bro compliment jeans. You're gonna get beat up. And I remember even as a kid, there was this dude up the street. I'm not gonna say his name. I'm not gonna out him. But there was this big family up the street. And they owned their own house, okay? They owned a big three family. Which is probably big deals. There's so many renters in the area, right? 
especially then my, my family got burned out of their house because my grandmother didn't want to sell to the developers. So they just came in the night through a fucking Molotov cocktail through a window. If I hadn't happened to be awake at three 30 in the morning on a school night, my whole family would be fucking dead because she wouldn't sell to the developers. The whole neighborhood got gentrified. This is right before that. So they have their own house. They work their asses off for it, but they're house poor. Okay. Yeah. All the money's going into the house. So the kids are wearing hand me and there's also like 14 kids. So they're wearing hand me downs from their older brothers. Now the local townies, my, my kids, my age, I hung around with one of them. He was my age. They all ranked on him. They made him a pariah because he wasn't wearing expensive clothes. But I used to say in my head, Hey, he gets to go home to a house that he owns at night. You got to go down to the projects where your doors still kicked open from the fucking feds raiding your father for selling Coke. Who cares if you're wearing a $300 fucking jacket? So this, you don't, you don't even own your own shit. You're fucking on welfare and government cheese. And you're fucking sneering at this kid because he's wearing his kids clothes, but their parents are together. They got money and they own a fucking house. It bothered me. It bothered me. I had like a seed of like, I, I didn't like what I was seeing around me. I kind of hated it. So the two things that came together was, I think the thing that led me to music was I saw around uh, 10 seconds of fucking Guns N' Roses live um, on a fucking, I was like nine or 10 or something. And I saw like 10 seconds of Guns N' Roses live on an MTV clip. They weren't popular yet. Just was like something, something else. And uh, I saw it. I, I saw like the music and, and the people going nuts at the, the show and them on stage looking badass and fucking like otherworldly. And I just was like, what the fuck is that? The music was real aggressive. It was Welcome to the Jungle. I remember the song. It was them playing Welcome to the Jungle live. So I looked into it and I got into it. And I, they didn't dress like the people in Charlestown. They didn't act like the people in Charlestown. They're doing this wildly abandoned thing. And Charlestown hated metal and, 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 and weird music. They called it that devil, devil worship and music. They all listened to the Smiths, Morrissey, Joy Division, which is good. I love all that shit. That's good music. But if you listen to like Metallica or something, I remember wearing a Metallica shirt and having a fight. <laughs> uh, it's, it's exactly. So I lived on the, the precipice of where the blacks of Puerto Ricans lived on the edge of the neighborhood. I was like, if I lived one block over, which I did when I first started school, I had to use my aunt's address. Cause I wasn't allowed to go to that school. Oh, the yeah. other school was worse. So when I moved that one block up next to my aunt, I'm a white kid with knee patches on my jeans. Cause my mom don't got money. I had to fight for that. I got to fight. I got, Oh, where's your dad? You don't got a dad. Oh, why do you have long hair? You know, my mom grew up young. She grew up a lot of metal guys in the area. So I had long hair. Everything you said, I resonate with because you had a fight to not be like these people. Yep. And it would always out of my asses years later after, you know, when the Metallica's at the Black Album, then these assholes are coming up to be like, dude, I fucking love this shit. And I'm like, hey, fuck you. Remember you were calling me a devil worshiper and I had to yeah. fight you. I had to beat your little fucking brother up for saying, what is that to kill your mother music? Yeah. And it's that, yeah. yeah. And it's that fucked up time. Now, obviously, I'm a little younger than you, but my mom was exposing us to shit. Like, you know, I was I seen Ozzy Osbourne as a kid. I took she took me to Kiss concerts and like that was my exposure out of this element. That's and bad. For, and for people listening when you're in a homogenized urban society, you're a pariah. If you don't fit in, this is not, this isn't today where you have your cute little TikTok and your fucking Instagram hashtags. If you didn't look like them, you were fucking attacked and not just, not just, Oh, what's this fucking weirdo people like what's wrong with you? What, you know, especially in that fucking the end of the Reagan early Bush era, like you were ripped the fucking part. If you were not, you know, this way or that way. And then, you know, as a white kid with long hair, I got it from the black kids and the Puerto Ricans too. Like, oh, sure. what you doing over here? You know, what are you doing over here? You know, like, I, I resonate everything with what you're saying. 
your survival depends on fitting in. Yeah. Um, and and I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. it. I couldn't either. And, um, you know, I did in a lot of ways, like a lot of the older guys, they, I was the weirdo. I was always the weirdo. Um, the older guys got a kick out of me because I was like wild. I was like drinking and like doing crazy shit. So they thought I was, they found me amusing, like a mascot, but the people my, you know, within a couple of years around me, they just thought I was like, you know, a disease. They were like, who's this other than my clo- my couple of close friends, but uh, all the guys I hung around with and we were all the weirdos and misfits anyway. You guys uh, hanging out in cemeteries or are you hanging under bridges? We were hanging in a schoolyard that would, nobody else wanted the corner of the schoolyard. I can show okay, you where it yeah. is. Still, still there to this day. And we had our own corner, which we, yeah. well, we would treat up the schoolyard when we started getting in shit with the other guys, the other, the other little crews that were cooler. But, uh, but what it really wasn't until um, I found punk rock that I found people that didn't just, I wasn't friends with them because of fucking geography. I was friends with them because of, personal experience we had similar experiences what was that first piece of punk rock that you caught on to well it, it kind of came in really short order from uh I, I saw i told you i saw the little guns and roses clip and i was like what's that wow like i, I don't know I, I still to this day can't really describe why it, i was so fascinated by it but i was like so i went and got the album and like I, it was it went to, it was before it broke it was like a year before nah, it took like two years for appetite to break it, it, it was a sleeper. It took like a long time. Um, but it was like a year after it came out and I just got it at like strawberries or some shit. But this, that, I wanted to find more of this shit. And I tried a few things like Aerosmith. I still love Aerosmith. They're great. But I remember them from when I was a kid. I wanted new shit. So I forget who told me about this. It had to be someone from Charlestown because at this point I wasn't hanging with the, I don't even think I was in fucking Latin, Boston Latin yet. So somebody had told me, well, there's like a lot of like punk and heavy metal uh, on a local college radio station called WERS. And uh, that, it was famous for years, but it played a lot of weird shit. It wasn't like you found like you, you had to listen to it for hours to hear one song you liked. And the song that fucking smoked me was Motor Breath by Metallica. I remember oh, that. Yeah. And I had never heard nothing like that. Nothing. I was like, what the fuck? It smoked everything else that had been on that night. I, rec- I had it recorded on a tape. I missed like the first seven seconds or something. I fucking wore that tape out. Uh, and that led me to Metallica. And that led me to uh, Slayer and like all of that shit. But then at the same time, I'm, I start going to Latin school. So I'm not going to, uh, that's high school. Uh, it's a test school. Uh, it's actually the oldest school in the country. Uh, I'm out of, I'm out of town. So it's not Charlestown no more. It's everybody from Boston. So now I'm finding other people that listen to Metallica Slayer and all that fucking shit. But I'm also hearing about this style of music being played in town itself. They're like, there's music like that here too. And the first band that I found and was my first hardcore band, Slapshot on Step On It album. Fucking smoke me. It was even to me, even purer than fucking, uh, you know, like Slayer and Metallica it was even purer and more stripped down. And I said, what the fuck's this? They're like, oh, this is hardcore punk. And this is, the, it was all skinhead. So now I'm getting, hanging around with the skins and shit like that. That was my entry point. Now, what what was the spot where the shows were at that time? Or should I say, I should I should drop back. Did you ever do concerts before you found shows? Or you, uh, some people have always been like, I found shows first. Other people are like, oh yeah, I went to concerts. What was your first engagement with live music? Live music, uh, my first was, I did a recital. 
uh, played Fur Elise in front of, um, no, I played Yellow Submarine by the Beatles in front of like the parents yeah. of the music school. Yeah. But the, the one after that was my father took me and my brother uh, to Elton John. That was my first concert that I remember, Elton John. And I remember being like uh, blown away by how it was so loud. It felt like somebody was pressing on my head. Like yep. it was like weight. Uh, I always had that big into Elton John, but he put on a good show and it was very memorable. But my first show show, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, was nausea, napalm death, God flesh. Uh, and then some other weird death metal band called Nocturnus with a drummer sang. That was my first real show. That was at the channel. And that was the big place. The channel, yeah. the rat, uh, Green Street. Those were the uh, bun ratties. Those were the three big ones at the time. Uh, four big ones at the time. Now, what was the entrance? Did you have a buddy like, hey, we're going to the show? Like, how did how did you like how did that whole walk up to the first show happen? Uh, it was I was hanging around with the the like the basically the proto Columbine kids at Latin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were the kids that these days would have be on like a watch list. Uh, and one of them one of them was actually Buddha. Um, he, 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 I, I hung around with him in high school and we would both pass around music to each other. And he's like, Oh dude, this, this is big. Cause the, the Godflesh napalm nausea show was, was one of those like package tours, like the grind crusher or like the new Titans or some shit like that. And he's like, we got to go check this out. So it was actually Buddha that brought me to that show. And I, and we went with a couple of friends at the time. This dude, Josh Weinstein, I still talk to him. Now, when you uh, when you guys started congealing like a group, did you feel like you had more problems with people from school, or did you feel like once they're like, "All right, these are the crazy ones," it was easier for you guys to kind of exist without having to be pecked off like something else? There's either like the loner style where some guys kind of found music and they had to go to the show, but then like you said, like Carl Picaro kind of put me on to like all the breakdown. And Bron you know, like Brooklyn and Bronx, they all had their own yeah. groups that all came down to the LES. So for you guys, it was your group that came down to Boston. How was that as like a as like someone not from Boston City proper the way the show is? How was that walking into oh shit, we're here, man? Like this is our show. Like how'd well, that feel? At the channel? Yeah. That first one, it was terrifying. Yeah. Um, it was fucking terrifying. Uh as far as like having problems at school, um, we were like sneered at, but they left us alone because they were kind of scared of us. Like uh, I was mean, like I would say horrible things to people, like hurt their feelings, like just to get them to go away. Buddha was violent. Um, I was less so. I mean, from time to time, I'd like, you know, flip out or something. But, you know, it would be like one of those, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, but uh, it was terrifying. And, you know, like I, I, I said this, like, when, I, when Blood for Blood first started touring, every new town we went into, I was like in terror. Like not terror, but I was super paranoid. I was super guarded. I was super watching everybody because I expected every scene to be the way Boston was. That's not the case. Not at all. Uh, the, 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 Philly was always bad. NYC at times was really, really bad. Depending on what show. You guys had shows where it was nothing, but then there are other times shit was off the hook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this was the worst time. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I've heard the 80s were horrible. Yeah. But in my experience, like, I'd seen a few shows in the 80s and very like, like that, that, that show I'm telling you about was either 89 or 90. I can't remember. I was like a kid. Like, I wasn't even like punked out yet. I wasn't even I was wearing like a champion sweatshirt, but 
oddly that kind of fitting because it was most yeah, was very Boston. <laughs> yeah, very Boston. That's it. And that was the beginning of skinheads who defined as skinheads, but not dressing like them. Remember the term sneaker boy? Yeah, that was us. <laughs> yeah, that. So I looked that. like one of them, so I actually fit in. But uh, yeah, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. People flipping off the stage. Uh, you know, f- fights for reasons I couldn't discern because everybody's smashing into each other like maniacs. But every once in a while, it would you know spark off a stabbing or something. I'm like, why'd that happen then and not then? Turns out it depends on who you crash into. <laughs> now, thinking about this. Besides Buddha, was there anybody in that first group of people that people who listen to the show might know? Or is this like you, Buddha, and a bunch of townies that kind of never did anything with bands? Like, is there anybody else in your first group of friends that kind of would be involved in Boston hardcore? Or did it take you going to shows to meet more Boston hardcore people? It's mostly meeting um, other other Boston hardcore people. Like, uh, we didn't bring any of the people from our hometown to the shows. That was mostly people we went to high school with and met via high school even if we didn't go to school with them we met them at like copley the other punk rock people the other skaters and shit like that so we were kind of like hanging out with them but once i found hardcore and punk i i and found this more importantly found the scene because there's a little bit of a difference you start going to shows but you're not part of yet yeah just going to the show so i did that no one knows your name you got to keep your back to the wall exactly hell yeah and it that took a while but once i found the, the scene as like my people then I had nothing to do with Charleston after that. Like I haven't, I haven't been back since. Thinking about it. What do you think the first people you started like be befriending from the actual scene? Like, can you remember people that you were linking up with after you kind of like showed your face enough? Like, do you remember the, the first people you started linking up with? Um, I mean, or earliest, like little, yeah, I, like little call, things. We didn't call exactly. ourselves, we didn't call ourselves a crew or nothing, but like the yeah. first group I hung around with was basically like, what ended up being the first incarnation of blood for blood and a couple of like, you know, the old drummer and stuff like that. We would all go I to like Mahoney together. and them guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those guys. And um, yeah, a, f- a few other ones too. The first guy that I became really good friends with uh, who was like, you know, ended up a lot of the, a lot of the old FSU guys, like, like yeah. Shabo. Yeah. Um, Shabo, Baldwin. Yep. Yep. Precise. Yeah. Those were the guys that, but to be honest, like I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Like I got, became friends with, uh shabo real quick like we actually just got along really well but a lot of the other guys i kind of just was like honestly i was like a dick rider i just i I wanted to be cool with them because these were the guys i admired these were the guys i looked up to um feared let's 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 be real like scared of them too but they were the ones i I was like these are the guys i want to hang around with like because um they were who i thought i wanted to be and and in many ways did like it was it was you know those guys now I know you play piano, but what was the what was the the point of interest to start playing guitar? Did you pick up the guitar in between somewhere at this point in our conversation? It was after the uh, that summer where I got real into like Metallica and. So you were so you were playing as you were discovering hardcore. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Almost within like months of uh, hearing like you know Metallica for the first time, Guns N' Roses, Slayer. I, I had bought a beat of guitar and was playing that thing to death, skipping school and playing that thing like 14 fucking hours a day. And and it's funny we came back to this because it, it was a way to weaponize music. And you know what I mean? Like it was like, because I, I never did sports again after my my uh, adolescence because of my experiences with it. I was like, it was an act of defiance. I'm not fucking doing that. 
and I thought I'd be the same with music, but I, I found with music, holy shit, you can turn this into a weapon. Like you can aim this at everything that you despise, everything that's mistreated you. Like that's, that's why the punk rock grabbed me more than like the metal, not even punk. It was really hardcore. It was those bands you mentioned, bands like Killing Time, uh, Outburst, Kickback, like the like, those shit terror, those lyrics I could truly relate to. I love the music with the with the thrash and shit with the Slayer, but I didn't give a fuck about like demons and fucking goblins. Yeah, demons and the devil. Yeah, and like fucking like I love Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't think it was real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I and I did. Like I I want that shirt so bad. <laughs> expert set. That was the first set I bought too when I was doing Dungeons and Dragons. I bought the expert set before the basic. So I had I, I think I think anybody who grew up in the 80s had interaction with Dungeons and Dragons and it's like for a minute it was a uh, faux pas to even as a hardcore person to mention that you ever played. Oh yeah. And, you know and but for me without Dungeons and Dragons that was a core group of people who would be the first people that we traveled the shows with from our neighborhood down were people that were headbangers who made that same transition from headbanging to death metal shows and then we found hardcore and we're like wait 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 you know. The yeah. only problem is is my guys wanted to stay in the Dungeon and Dragons world and smoke weed in the basement. I'm like, I'm going to fucking shows. Fuck this. Oh. Like I, and that was a thing. So as a player, you know, you you're, you hear Guns and Roses. They got a real rock, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, rock and roll playing style. Then you you pick up Metallica, and when you hear those first riffs being down, the picking is very guarded, very fast. Oh yeah. And then Slayer has a mix of that. They still have like the some of the, depending on what Slayer record you have some of that old punk open style, but uh, Zach Thorne from Bulldoze and agents, he said, you could tell that Slayer kind of heard Metallica and was like, oh, fuck, we got to step it up. Oh, yeah. Once they, heard, once they heard those Ride the Lightning riffs and stuff. So were you able through piano playing to understand like how the notes and, the, and how to play uh, and play the scales and understand that quickly? Like, was that easy for you to pick up as you're like listening by ear and learning these songs? Was that something that helped you? And then how did you deal with all the different picking from like the Guns N' Roses to the Metallica's later to the Slayer? Then you hear hardcore and you're like, what the fuck are they doing? How are they doing yeah. this? You know, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that Um, in hindsight, at the time, no, I didn't think I got anything from the piano. In hindsight, I did. In hindsight, I perhaps understood some things a little more intuitively than I might have otherwise. But for me, it was all just self-taught, like, I would just sit there and hack at that fucking guitar until that what was coming out of it sounded kind of like what was happening on the speakers. And it's, I'm so grateful because my, the bands that I basically learned to was like Guns N' Roses, uh, Metallica, Slayer, Misfits, Sex Pistols, Slapshot. So that is like basically every sound of rock and roll in like one big giant spectrum. You got like the, old rock with the guns and roses. You got the tight shit with fucking Metallica that. So those are my foundations. And I have this theory with music. You can never be better than your foundations, whatever your basis was like guys that just listened to the misfits and learned guitar. All they could do was smash power chords. They didn't have a lot of like, uh, you know, they, 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 they didn't have a lot of uh, versatility. I, I could play those albums. I made it a point to play those albums back and forth. I would, sit down with any one of those albums I just mentioned, put it on, pick one of the guitars. Am I going to play this one, this one, this one, this one? Cause with them, you know, like usually four and just play it from beginning to end album, top to bottom. I, I remember waiting saying, I'm going to be ready when Slayer calls me, I'm going to be able to step right in and fucking of course never happened. But, um, 
Yeah, like in hindsight, yes, it did help. And, and, and as far as those influences go, I'm grateful because it allowed me to be a, a, a you know, my stuff I could play was a bit broader than like the average person that just started like learning a few misfit songs or something like that. I know uh, early on in this time frame, hardcore goes from the slap shot sound, the street element from the biohazard, sick of it all comes in, but you still have, and you, and it's a great thing you brought up sheer terror, sheer terror manages to like mix this nuance of like, you know, Paul, he's from the first generation of hardcore, you know, he's a big fan of nihilistic. So he has that approach. Oh yeah. Nihilistic. But, good reference. But if you're, but if you're listening, it's those dirty open, like fucking nasty chords that Blake wrote that oh, really yeah. make, make sheer terror something sonically different. Celtic frost. <laughs> Blake, Blake was like a student of Celtic frost. And that, that, and that I was going to ask you is, did you start hearing this New York stuff and discern a difference between like the more punk rock faster? Because the, the, the Boston stuff didn't have as much as that metallic stuff. There was some metallic, but it was a lot of New York that was bringing the street stuff or the really metallic stuff at that time. Yeah. And, and, and often both together. Uh, I mean, we could talk about Shia Terra for like an hour. There was such an anomaly. Uh, in so many ways. And, and I'm grateful for that. Like they, they, that allowed me to really, um, you know, like I, I let, well, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, yeah, like, I mean, like slap shot on like step on it. It's super stripped down, but that's really well played. It's like really tight. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like th- those guys could fucking play. So there's like the tightness and it's very metallic. It's just very straight ahead. But, um, and, 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 and like, I love that style. Uh, but the, yeah, the New York stuff, they, they, you know, it was bringing in like some of the elements of thrash and shit like that. And it, I'm still swirling around. So this appeals to me. I haven't like, I never seized on one style of music. Like I always, you know, listen to anything that appeals to me, as long as I believe in it, I'll listen to it. But um, yeah, it was something really like, uh, it was like a lot of ferment going on. Um, that, that era of New York bands, it was like the collision between like really fast stripped. So you had the speed, but along comes this, the bus, like carnivore was really like the first one to start doing those really quarter notes and shit. Like, um, it was, it was fresh. It was really fresh. If you, if you have like a record store that like you used to check out stuff, how were you guys checking out new music? Besides when bands were coming to the town at that time? Uh, you had to, I remember at that time you had to like, I, I drove, I took a cab. I like spent all my money for like the month to go across town to some weird little, I think it was called In Your Ear in, in Cambridge, just to get the Sam Hain Initium tape. Like that's, that's how much I wanted that goddamn tape. Uh, but there was a place in Hobbit Square called Second Coming. You could get oi shit there, punk hardcore metal demos. They would even sell demos. They would even max sell re-record demos and sell them in like a dollar bin. So you could get like shit happening. And like, I remember getting like a maximum penalty tape. It was like a max sell tape. They were basically ripping the bands off. Yeah. But they're trying to still get the music out or whatever. Yeah. That was a big nineties thing. Now I'm glad you're, I'm glad you brought up Oi because obviously your brother Mark is uh, synonymous with the ducky boys state, uh, state line records. And Boston specifically has a deep connection musically with punk and whatever you want to call what would come from the the bands that come later. But it's impossible to not note that as you're 
so Metallica are also very known for punk rock, very known for being synonymous with a very oi influenced sound. So how early did punk rock and oi also influence your playing? Uh, well, that that all of this is like happening like all at once. Like so it's, it's an amalgamation. You're getting hit from all sides. All sides, and um, you know, like Buddha was like boots and braces at this time, so he's throwing like the oppressed at me and fucking the foreskins and all that shit. Um, and at the time, keep in mind, like, you know, this is the the, the like, it's it's the very early '90s, but it's still got the aesthetics of like the mid to late '80s, where hardcore itself um, was uh, it, it was tons of skinheads. Like that was that was like. Everywhere. Yeah. That was Everything. a huge part Chromags, of it. Yeah. Like the band Slapshot were skinheads at that time. Uh, the Chromags were agnostic front. Jesus Christ. So this is all like, there's no distinctions really. Like all this stuff. I'm listening to the exploited two seconds later, like Slapshot, like two seconds later, fucking, uh, you know, Forbidden or Dark Angel or some shit like that. It's just this mash. But then That's like, it. it's funny when you said like, when you start going to the shows regularly, we used to call that the show whore phase where you would just go anywhere. There was a stage, a set of drums and a pit. We missed nothing. We would go to bands we never even heard of on the off chance there might be a pit all week, anything, didn't care. I think that's a big part of that first wave of uh, euphoria finding shows. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. It's very, it's very relatable to how we grew up. Was like, there's uh, we had the Trocadero, which you've been to in Philly, where, there was a, we, and now that the internet, they're posting these old calendars, like the whole month. And I go, like, Oh yeah, I was there five time shows. I would see like KMFDM one weekend. I'd yeah. see, you know, you'd see the Oi show. We went to the ska shows just cause there was girls and they wore skirts and we're like, Oh, there's girls in this show, <laughs> you know, like, and you also went and seen the forbiddens. You saw the fucking cannibal corpses, you know, you saw everything because you're just excited about the live music. Yes. But, um, Oi specifically East coast is, I think, I've always said that New York had a, had a touch of it, but I think Boston really they kept it they kept it alive in a lot of ways in hardcore. And I and I and not and I'm glad you brought up Buddha because there was a lot of skinheads at that time. And I think that people often like if you and you know me and you can go into this with like oh the Detroit dudes they were heavy into oi. Oh yeah, like 1979 they were getting them records off the rip and then like. We've talked to people that are like, like all the New York dudes, like even Wally from GB has been on the show, you know, like everybody was hip to like, oh, yeah, you know, we heard all this English music, you know, so like it was a thing. But um, how soon how soon into the did you guys go to like uh, like the bruisers or when them guys were playing? Like, how were their shows at that time as well? They they were one of the um, one of the if, if the bruisers came and played Boston, they were one of the bands that brought everybody out everybody the hardcore guys even even some like at the time like youth crew and straight edge the punks the skins you'd see mohawks liberty spikes everything oddly it's what blood for blood shows look like later um it's kind of just like an amalgam that second in that second wave that's exactly what it looked like there was no like because there's a period where in the 90s where a hardcore show it's going to be basketball jerseys and like tribal tattoos and you're 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 totally getting to where i was going with it i said about the street thing yeah, but it's cool that you mentioned it because I've seen old pictures from the Bruisers, and obviously, like Roger talked about it when there was the Boston, New York thing. Oh yeah, but the Bruisers came up, and and then AF came up, and the Bruisers built this relationship with New York. Yep. But it's such a weird time because you go from the jackets and the straight edge and the clean cut, you know, skinhead look of the slap shot 
to everybody dressed in a big black jacket, ski cap, you know, in Boston, it's, it's track pants, it's sneakers. It's, it's, it's a champion hoodie, you know, in New York and Philly, it's hoodies and big pants. And then all of a sudden this blood for blood starts popping up, but it's not just it's, it's, it's that demo. The hurt you demo is heavy. It's hard. It's loud. It's fast. And I, it's great to hear that these are all the influences being pulled into it, especially at that time for hardcore, because there was in New York and in Philly, a window where hardcore got a little bit murky because the violence was getting so bad. There wasn't as many shows. Oh yeah. And then then I, I remember specifically reading about the hurt you demo and being like, wait, what's this? And then next thing you know, you guys were like a wave crashing in. Next thing you know, it was like a game of telephone. Every time you're talking to someone, have you heard the blood for blood demo? What about the blood? For, you know, like it was immediate. Damn. So it's awesome hearing that you said this because later on, towards the end of that period, it wasn't, it wasn't looking like a '90s biohazard of Onyx video. It was exactly that: giant Liberty spikes, shirtless skinheads with braces, hardcore kids, dudes in basketball jerseys and soccer shorts. Like it was everything. everything. Later on in Blood, but but in the beginning, Blood for Blood was more of like the street level hardcore stuff that first picked you guys up. Oh yeah, at the beginning, yeah. It, 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 but it was weird though. Like it, it's this is like two things. I remember Matt Henderson coming out. Uh, he walked in at the. I think it was the back to school gym where Blood for Blood broke up for the first time for the first time, first of all, like a thousand and six times on stage at the end of the show. I did anyway. I was like, I'm fucking done with this. But uh, he went in and uh, said, holy shit, it looks like a show from 1982 in there. Cause there was a period and we kind of set out to do that. That was like something we wanted to do. And in fact, cause we, we would play with all different kinds of bands. Um, we, we, you know, once we started getting a little bit more known, we could at least get on some better shows. So we, we would play with like, uh, you know, Earth Crisis, or we play with Madball, or we play with like, but we weren't quite crossing over with any particular crowd. We would just have a few people there into us. And because with, you know, like, how does Blood for Blood fit with Earth Crisis? We're like, really like, we're heavy, but we're not heavy the way they are. Lyrically, we don't really have a lot in common with them. But it was, it was even hard with like, you know, we weren't crossing with any particular audience. And I remember the band, uh, I don't remember who I remember having this discussion with the band. I don't remember specifically who, but there was somebody was expressing they were being they were disheartened because we we're starting to get shows and tours that we wanted, but we weren't really quite breaking through. And I said, no, no, no. I said, we're not we don't have an immediate scene. We don't have an immediate crowd. We're one of those bands. We got to sift through everybody. OK, we got to play in front of skinheads. We got to play in front of fucking Liberty Spikes. We got to play in front of the youth crew kids. We got to play in front of the metalheads. We got to play in front of the sheer terror crowd. What we're going to do is we're going to sift and catch all the really angry ones, all the really traumatized ones, all the really damaged ones. And that's what our audience will be. The really mad, the really angry ones, the really damaged ones. I said, but once we got them though, we're going to be really important to them. I didn't put it that way at the time. What I said was we're going to, they're going to stick around. And that yeah. turned out to be true. That 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 turned out to be like prophetic because there was a period in the '90s where, like my me and my brother's bands, we didn't have nothing to do with each other on the come up. He developed the Ducky Boys entirely on his own. He was like a little promoter at the Rat and booked his own shows. And I came up with uh, the old drummer book and all the shows. There was yeah, no crossover Mike, that- until both bands were established. For for me, with 
the my exposure to Blood for Blood was a demo. And then what I saw was a band that did what every band at that time did. Like you guys would come down to CC's. You guys would play all the small places you needed to play. And so from a from a fan point of view, I was looking at we could probably, you know, make it easy. It was you were checking the right boxes of playing them small towns where the rabid hardcore fans were at. Yeah. And you were you were making seeds of progress. It's just hard to say because at that time it went from hardcore was not slowed down, but it was weird. What was I mean, sick of it all was like the biggest thing for a minute. But yeah. then that whole wave came and it was a surge all at once. The strife, the earth crisis, the victory stuff popped okay. up. But then they're also but also on a different level, you had and it's I, it's it's hard to give praise, but it's a truthful thing is like you had the 25 to life and the Rick explosion, which pushed a ton of heavy bands that weren't in the, that were completely DIY like yourselves. We we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast and different guests, and we all revel in the professionalness of the blood for blood demo. We're like, Holy fuck. Look at this fucking thing. Like it wasn't no max cell ghetto shit. It was like, this is a fucking demo tape. You know, like you guys came out of the rip. You guys had better t-shirts. Like, you guys were, and I was like, man, these guys have to live in a cold area. This fucking shirt's thick. You know, like, <laughs> it's the same thing. But the quality of what Blood for Blood brought balanced out, you know? And, like, I was also lucky to travel a lot at that time because all of our friends' bands were playing. So you'd start seeing Blood for Blood shirt. Like, where the fuck did they get that? You know, I was up in here, and they played here. And then everybody, all the hard asses, and you'd see, like, you saw the dude from Fury of Five with a Blood for Blood shirt. You're like, oh, fuck, look at that oh, thing. Yeah. They're like, and then when all war started coming down here more, those dudes were big champions of you guys. Those were the two, and, two of the first bands from out of state that we got really tight with. Fury. Yeah, them guys. And also the Crutch guys as well. Them dudes coming down and next, you know, they're wearing blood oh, for yes. blood stuff. Yes. The Crutch oh. guys were really, and that's the thing is, is we used to play with them at CC's all the time. All and the that time. was the thing is you guys could play in the middle of the fucking week and people are traveling. That was like one of the first places to see you guys. And so I get from your perspective, you're like, fuck, we're not really hitting with one thing. But the thing was, is I looked like you were building this insane foundation because the demo ripped it. You, uh, for those listening, Rich to Life did a real good job of getting different bands demos out, but because they were all duplicated hand style, Rick bootlegged a lot. Yeah. You couldn't bootleg that blood for blood demo, you know? And like you said, you did at one point when I first started, I did, I started booking shows in the beginning of 2000, uh, the beginning of 97 trying to call Mike and leave a message at his house and him call. Like, I think I played phone tag with him for months just because you guys are really starting to set it off. And you guys at that point, but early on when you guys are traveling down here for the first times, Jesus Christ, man, like it was cool to see the buildup of the band. And I have to wonder is, do you think if you guys didn't go out to Chicago for them shows, if the trajectory of that band would have shifted a bit, or do you think that you think naturally on the East building up, playing the, the VFWs, the CCs, and getting on these shows. What do you think would have happened had you not made that crazy drive out to Chicago? Uh, it's a, that's a wicked good question because you just, in, in that entire uh, retrospective you just kind of touched on, Joe, you touched on everything I wanted to mention about Blood for Blood finally taking off. It was like years and nothing, and then it suddenly tipped over. And I remember when it tipped over, it was when we went out with and did like a, a three-week tour with Agnostic Front. And I was like, okay, this is finally tipping. Um, there were three things blood for blood had going for it at the beginning because we were terrible at the beginning. Like I, 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 well, we'll get to that in a second. One, I can't like, I have to, 
I have to acknowledge this because none of this would have happened without the original drummer, Mike. Yeah, um, awesome. He, he was so driven to network and do shows. He was setting up shows, trading shows, trading shows. You come up, I'll put this show on you four, you get us out there. Booter and I were so apathetic and so, you know, surly and fucking, uh, you know, just we could never have done that. Mike, Mike had this drive to book and it just got us out there. Were we a terrible band at that time? Yeah. Did, you know, could we play? No. Uh, but we got out there and got so wired into uh, the scene and knew the bands and knew how to get shows that we, he, he built this infrastructure and then made use of it. Uh, that was something we would never have done without him. So he needs some real acknowledgement for the beginning. Second thing, a secret weapon uh, was that demo in a roundabout way. It was finding Jim Siegel at the outpost in Stoughton. That's dude. That dude was our weapon X. Your average listener doesn't distinguish between the band and the production. They just hear it and it's all one big thing to them. Siegel was a monster producer. That guy should have been in LA. He didn't want to, he, he didn't have aspirations for that. He just wanted to pay his bills and do music. Like he, he, he had no, but if that guy had, he should have been in LA or New York city, he would have been a major producer. That guy was like our secret weapon because we weren't great players, but I did have a vision with the music. I didn't know what I wanted. He helped me get it and he made it sound huge. So though we weren't great players, we would go out, the energy and the violence at the shows would get people interested, get them to buy the recording. And then they'd be like, this is awesome. That was, the, that was you know, what fueled the whole thing. And then the last, uh, you know, we were already, it was some momentum, but yes, going out to Chicago and getting on Victory was fucking huge. It was huge because this is the thing about Victory, whether they promoted you or not. At the beginning, they didn't know what to do with us. And their ideas of how to... Uh, promote us were completely at odds with what we were trying to do. They caught on, they caught on. But the thing with victory is all of a sudden overnight, your record, whether people want it or not, is available in every store in the country, just about, just about every major store in the country. What that allows for is if somebody catches wind of your band, they can impulse buy it. Whereas otherwise they'd have to go through some mail order service or, you know what I'm saying? Or go order it through like some local record store. So, those were like three of the things that, and the fact that we were willing to grind. And then it all comes together with exile. That's by that point, I had, I, I, I didn't even consult the band in the writing of that album. I didn't even show them nothing. That was where everything kind of came together. That was the second record on victory. Uh, that was, that was kind of it. That's the hardest thing about the first record was that it had so many songs that have all that early influence into the band but it was a local label. The distro distro for people listening isn't un unanimous. It's not unilateral like it is now where anyone has access. If you had a label that wasn't in the inroads, just one of the many distributors. And at the time there wasn't a monopoly like there is with revelation records now where they distro all the major catalog of all the labels. There was competing distros with oh, competing yeah. labels and a small label could sell 150 copies and never get paid and they could go under just because they never made their money back. Yeah. We've talked about this on different episodes here. So Lost Disciple was a good label to release because they had, they were local and you knew them. But at the same time as if you're not 
having a network where this record can fly past the Northeast, you know, like because of your traveling, that record was on South street in Philadelphia. That record was at Jamie deck, a double decker in Pennsylvania. But was it, was it always going to California? Did it go to the Texas area? Like that's the thing that Rob's talking about on the show is when you get on something like victory, you immediately have this cascade where everyone hears your name and the record is now unilaterally available. Yeah. It's available everywhere. And and that, and that really did become like the, like the boom, like that extra fire in it. And it's a shame because people to this day, look at that record. Like what, what happened? It's like, it was their first release on a local, you know, like the production's great. The songs are as exactly you said, they have all those uh, generating elements, the dirginess, the fastness, the anger, you have that long song at the end. that's still one of my favorite. First time I heard on the LP, I was like, how long is this fucking record? You know, like I remember hearing it, but it's such a great way to walk off a record. Like it's a walk off, you know, like. For sure, for sure. And one of the thi- to I thought in those terms, wind up, meet, you know, walk off or closer, closer. Like Yeah, it's just like a, I think if it had like a big, like, and it's also very Metallica-esque in a way, because they always had like a song towards the end that even though the song. Or. Orion or something like that. Exactly. And the thing is, is, you know, um, what's fucked up. We're talking about it. I, I imagine you being critical enough that you were thinking about a song, a a side songs and B side songs, because that record, I think that's the last record that I thought of you guys as an A side record and a B side record. Cause I think when you did revenge, there was a kind of unilaterally more of a CD thing. You know what I mean? Like, and you could, but that there's definitely an element to that. And it's a, it's a, it's not a lost record, obviously, with the internet. You can hear it now. But, like, there was a minute where you got that record, like, oh, fuck, I can't believe, you know, like, it wasn't as easily. There. And then next thing you know, Blood for Blood, boom, victory. In zines, it was interesting, like, the wrong zines. Just would say, this is another Nazi band for ball. You know, like, there's always this stuff. And what was also being acclaimed is, in New England, Boston and Northeast above, like, New Hampshire, Maine, there was riots. And people like, I-, I remember people being like, Dude, when they play up there, there's riots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, and then I asked the crutch guys, and they're like, Oh, we play Brockton. And I'm like, Dysphoria came up to Brockton, and everybody looked like a blood for blood video to me. Like, you know, but like, God, I remember I, Dysphoria. We used to play with them a lot too. They, they, what fucking cool dudes. They were fucking good guys. Well, that's how, that's how, you know, those are the first guys I remember in Chris's van. Without Chris Dysphoria, there's no Joe Hardcore. There's no this Hardcore. Like, that's like, my one of my first early hardcore. I, I I was their roadie. They took me to Detroit, you know, like as a like a 17 turning 18 year old kid. But I remember him playing me that demo and me being like, wait, what the fuck? You know, like, and he's like the cool, he was like the guy who was hip, and you guys are playing down here. But at the same time, I think everybody had this mystique of like in New England, blood for blood shows were riots, <laughs> you know, like it's like early we, on. A lot of places that it was like we, we lot had a lot of experiences all over the place, but it got funny because uh, after a certain, on the come up, yes, that was 100% true. But then there reaches a point where the place where we're drawing the least was actually like a, like a small hardcore show in Boston because people were afraid to come out. And if they did come out, they hit at the back. There was like that period. That was probably like between 2001, 2003, somewhere in there. I was like, weird. It's like we're dropping off in Boston and people are like, no, they're scared and the promoters won't have you. But um, yeah, the, the, you know, the stuff I saw at the rap just when we were coming up like every weekend or at least every time we played is going to prevent me from getting into heaven just by proxy, like just by seeing it. 
Like I'd be like, oh, dude, I got to wash my eyes. This is gross. And this is back before we'd stop playing. Like this is back when we'd turn around and pretend we weren't seeing it because we, we were evil. I think a lot of it is, is what are you going to do? You know, like it, 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 you're not going to be able to put a, you're not going to be able to put a raging fire out. It's not going to happen. No, no. And, but it did have a synonym. It had like a synonymous thing that would come with blood for blood. And um, I remember one time there was blood for blood marauder punched the clown and CC's. And that was like, and that was like the, that was like one of the first times there was like blood for blood had a squad because you guys had to punch the clown guys down. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, I just ran into one of those guys recently. Yeah, and then so then when dysphoria came up to Brockton for the first time, they were kind of like, are you guys from PA too? And we're like, you know, that's how I became friends with Brian Depp for dishonor, you know, like all these dudes we met at that show. But that's the other thing about that area. You, you guys would go down, you guys could, there was small scenes, you know, that Ellen Geed club, the Bristol skate park. Like there was, there was a crazy, there was a crazy Connecticut scene that vibed differently. There was the new Paltz, uh, Newburgh area with oh, the yeah, all war yeah, guys. Yeah. There was the Albany shows, which you guys played with Stigmata. You guys played with Fury of Five War, Ty Manor. You guys played some wild shows. Jeez, this is yeah. really bringing. Ba- I remember all of this shit. These were all little islands, little islands. Yeah. They were the, the shows were great. They were fucking awesome. But that's like for me, like that kind of like we're talking about that. That's how you guys generated this foundation because. Yeah, you guys are in Boston. You're not not playing Albany. You're not playing. You're not not going to play these places. And it really built up. It really built up not only a mystique of like your your shows are crazy, but because of dysphoria and the bands that we were friends with going to shows everywhere we went, it was blood for blood, blood for blood. You know, like you know, like everybody was talking about it. shit. Uh, I it's funny hearing that from like the outside. Um, I remember like things starting to change. I remember uh, t- two things. I remember my brother Moxie and. Um, it was after a rat show and this would have been after this would have been it, it certainly after spit my last breath, but I think it was after revenge as well. Uh, afterwards, he's like, dude, there's just some weird vibe with you guys. He's like, when you guys are getting ready to go on, he's like, there's this vibe, like something's happening. Like, it's just a little different. He's like, I don't know how to put my, my, my finger on it. He said, but he said, it, it, it reminds me of like, um, uh, he, he referenced some really odd bands. He's like, it's one. It's like when I go to see Rancid. He's like, if that's the way it feels for me, that's he's like, I get the same vibe. That's the way it feels to the people that are coming to see you. He said, also reminds me of all things. He said the the fucking replacements, um, because he used to he loved them back in the day. But um, uh, the fuck was I gonna say? There was something you had said. Ah, uh, traveling with the different shows or the different scenes. Just um, kind of like uh, to hear like, because I know that like by the time we were firmly, ast- oh, I know what it was. Anthony Papalato from fucking um, in my uh, eyes in and my eyes, yep, yep. In uh, a, t- a ten yard fight originally, and then started yeah. in my eyes with Sweet Pete. Um, he played with Sinners and Saints for a while. I fucking love that dude. By the way, shout out to Anthony Pops. I love your brother. Um, he's he said, dude. He's like, it's weird. Cause I was saying, Oh dude, we sucked at the beginning talking about blood for blood. We were talking one night. This is actually a couple of months ago. And he said, yeah, man. He's like, I look at it like this. He's like, I always had it in my head. There was like come up blood for blood. He's like, which I didn't have any special feelings towards. He's like, I just sort of, you guys were just like another band to me. He's like, and then something happened. I didn't see you for like a year. He's like, and then you turned into like headliner blood for blood. 
He's like, and that was totally different. But there was a chronology to that too, because uh, one of the reasons I started talking on the records in between the songs took over that whole thing is because Buddha at the beginning had like stage fright. If he was playing in front of a big audience that he knew loved the band, he'd be awesome. He'd be engaging. He'd talk. But if they, if the audience wasn't already won over, like I, this is where the tipping point was. We went out with uh, Scarhead, Downset, no, Scarhead, Madball, and Earth Crisis. That was our first big tour. We got on the booking agent because uh, the agency, it was uh, Bay Ridge Booking. Remember them? They booked like type. I was going to bring that up. They got on uh, Bay Ridge. John Finberg. <laughs> yep. We didn't actually that- Finberg. Towards, he did like one tour for us, but we mostly worked with the other two guys. But we only got on, we, we called Victory and said, can you get us a booking agent? And they said, we'll try. And Bay Ridge, uh, Hatebreed dropped off, Hatebreed and H2O dropped off that tour after the Chicago riot. So we got a call from Bay Ridge. It was a fucking Wednesday. They said, if you can be in Seattle by Saturday, we'll book your band and we'll put you on this tour. But you got to do this tour. We all quit our jobs and went out and did this fucking tour. Uh, but on that, so we, we're, we're on this tour. It's our first big opportunity. And Buddha was just standing there on stage and saying nothing. These cl- clubs are packed. They're fucking packed, Joe. And they're dying to dance. And we're going on early enough that we should be the band to set it off. But he's not saying, saying nothing. He's just standing there. Now, in hindsight, I know it was nervous nervousness. He's just had stage fright. That's fine. I'm not holding that against him. But at the time, he was wicked pugnacious about it, like he was about everything. I'm not fucking, I'm not saying nothing to these fucking, they dance for me, I don't dance for them. I'm like, what's that fucking mean? I'm like, what? I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. They're paying to see us. We, So because we had this big sit down, like, dude, you got to fucking try to do something on stage. You can't just stand there. We kind of kept doing it. So I was like, well, if he ain't going to do it, I will. And I used it as an opportunity. I realized and it was another evolution. Once I started talking, because he wouldn't, that's the only reason I did it. I didn't set myself this goal of being the voice of blood for blood or being the visible guy or anything. It's just that nobody else would fucking do it. So I started doing it. That led to the second thing, which was a turning point for the fucking band. I realized we were playing in front of audiences sometimes that should be into us, but they weren't crossing over. I was like, they're not getting what we're about. And I realized it's because nobody was telling them what they were about. If you want somebody to understand what you were about, you can't sit there and pout and wait for them to understand you. You got to fucking tell them what you were about. So I started before every song telling the audience, this is a song about two in the morning on a Tuesday night when you're about to lose your job because you got alcohol poisoning for the 15th night in a fucking row and you're facing DTs. This is a song that's called All Fucked Up. And talk about shit like that. All of a sudden, people are understanding what we're about. That's another part of the chronology. That was a huge, actually, it's cool that you got to that point. And I remember that tour was fucking wildfire because all them bands were cresting into this crazy. These are the bands right now. And there was tons of tours. There was tons of shows, but hardcore has this fucked up thing because everybody has their own representatives. Nobody wants to put a tour like that together. Even then, even now, because that little bit of, well, I don't want to play after these guys or I don't want to play before them. And it made it so hard when you guys were all, fucking really blowing fucking insane amounts of shows by yourselves. Like you guys could all headline your own shows. 
And that was one of them. Wait, that's a fucking tour. Yeah. I like that you glossed over the Chicago riot because all the people like in, in interviews are like, hey, we had this riot and now we're moving on. But um, but <laughs> specifically with that tour, that's a, like a, almost a cultural shift in itself. Because if you saw that tour, you saw these bands. And I remember seeing you guys and it was not, it wasn't so long after the LP, the first LP came and it was mad awkward. Like you needed that moment where the you know we're in a, you gotta remember I'm like a young pit kid so we're trying to we're tired and it was quiet for a minute in between you guys songs so quiet usually at a show means someone's getting a fucking fight or something you know yeah. like and there was a lot of like he might say hey is this a song but it was very stoic couple words and then I remember on that tour seeing you guys and you were like saying shit and I'm like oh fuck you know and then revenge Dude, that thing, fucking, if you didn't do that, I think that it's impossible to see Blood for Blood in the next stage without you taking a, a larger presence because you gave that, you gave that, and it's funny you say, like, Charlestown, like, you gave that feeling of, like, this is a Boston band. Oh, yeah. Because you guys are so fucking quiet, and Mike's quiet guy, you know, I think you just shifted from Gina to Ian at the time. Yeah. But, you know, like, it, it's a thing where, you gave a character, not in a carny sense, but in a, in, a, in a livable experience thing to Blood for Blood because of how short Buddha was. And I, we didn't know if he was just a drank a lot or if he was just a big guy, but it was like he said almost nothing on stage a lot of the times yeah. early on. So I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. Yeah, you wouldn't even gas the crowd up. And like I said, I now know what it was. He was just, you know, uncomfortable, self-conscious. And I, I have empathy for that. I'm not. But at the time, I was rabid. It, it fucking infuriated the fuck out of me. Because like at the same tour, like Scott had to go out there and fucking, you know, Ezek. He yeah. would be hyping the crowd up. They'd be going nuts. They totally set it off. And, on, you know, on the nights where the audience, where, where, the, where, the, where, we, where it was a town we played before, they knew who we were, it would go mental. But. I'm like, dude, we just all quit our jobs for this and we're not putting in the time. Like I said, I didn't understand it. I've never been leery of being on stage. It just, that that's never daunted me. So I was like, well, if he ain't going to do it, I'll fucking do it. I don't want to hear a word about it. I'm going to fucking do it then. And I, it's funny, you know, just different character, character and stuff as far as characteristics. I remember the days when every single band had a different, like they had like, there were the, the bands were characters. There was Paulie Barra. He was fucking hilarious. There was Pete Steele. He was dry and, you know, like the, the the dry wit. There's Jimmy Gestapo who could talk the brawls off a brass monkey. I could listen to that guy talk about nothing. He was so entertaining. Like he because just the front man head. had to be a front man. There was always yes. bands. The the music, not to say that these bands you brought up are a dime a dozen, but there was a hundred hardcore bands. Yeah. It's the ones that had that persona in the front that drew the charisma to the band. You know, yeah. like I actually just did Jimmy in um the end of uh november or the very beginning of november and he played in front of a bunch of young punk kids or it's been the old guys by the bar it was young punk kids bantering with him climbing on him and he came back in his age like this is one of the best like when you see jimmy on fire you're seeing oh, yeah. jimmy i'll tell you what that top not to, to derail our conversation civ all the old guys will say specifically jimmy was at the high end like the, the the high end of what front men were in new york hardcore oh yeah but i'd only see them from 
their time in mid nineties onward. And they didn't have those giant shows at Thompson square park. There was like an extra glint in that man's eye. And there's like thousands of people in this park. And I looked over and they're like, this is, this is the Murphy's law that we believe. Like, this is the, like he's an entertainer. Oh yeah. And, and it's not a corny thing. It's not like a, no. you know, organ grinding monkey fucking thing. It's a real thing where put some character and it actually juxtaposed that against the hardcore scene today. There are so few people in the bands, working bands coming up that really stand out because it's so homogenized again. So I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, Scarhead's cool, but it's wild and ass Isaac and Boston Mike at the time. Yep. And you know, like it's the characters it's, Freddie Manball being able to keep that fucking fury of fucking going on stage. Carl and his crazy, this is for the vegans. And, you know, like everybody had, you know, and then, you know, Vogel went from despair to buried alive. Vogel would have his energy. Yep. Every band at that time who were all your peers brought something extra. So you felt like, man, you get even more attached to this band, yep. not just sonically, not just lyrically, but this person, like, I mean, at the time Capo was doing shelter and even Capo still had, you know, like downset Ray, Ray had his thing. There's so many great bands of that era that had that front man thing down that pulled people in magnetism wise. So we talked about that. Yeah. yeah, It has to be more than just the music. It's gotta be everything. And at that time, like you were saying it, it, it was like, I'm not trying to say that I'm not trying to do this. Like, old man curmudgeon like no 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 this is just reflections this isn't this isn't this isn't shit this isn't like old man yells at a cloud this is is like this is like a contrast and comparisons because there's times now where i look at bands and the whole port of entry is you send me something on the internet digitally i record it we put a band camp up four thousand people heard us tonight because we put it on twitter it's like it took blood for blood five months of playing you know, four weekend, you know, four shows in three weekends, traveling hundreds of miles, selling 10 demo tapes here, five here, a shirt here to get that 4,000. Oh, yeah. So that chops, that repetition, that cadence of songs, you know, like, and, and, and that's the thing where you said you weren't a good player, but you guys had that grind, that fucking, that stone, the fucking sharpen you guys up because you had to play the East Coast. You had to play Portland, Maine. Oh, yeah. But you also had to play the Met Cafe in Prov. You had to play the Bristol Skate Park in Connecticut. Then you had to go out to the PWAC in Long Island, or you had to go play Castle fucking Heights, and you had to play the Pipeline or these crazy places in New Jersey that were in the middle of nowhere. Otherwise, this kid wasn't going to know who the fuck Blood for Blood was. Yep. And that would be the thing that would bring Blood for Blood. The cream rises to the top. Eventually, every band's going to be followed by... Uh, copycats and I mean you saw it in different but very few ever could touch what Blood for Blood had and I think that's why towards the end of the 90s you guys were being separated songwriting wise charisma wise fan base wise because you were different you weren't just you know like it was it was a much different experience you know it will just just speaking to like the people that can put up like a you know do like a mail some tracks do a band camp pop it up and get 4,000 people. That's true. And all the power to them, that's making use of what's available to them. That's what you got to do. But with, with like what, what we did with that real stuff, but, and it it leads to like, you know, are those 4,000 people going to get that band tattooed on their neck? I doubt it. In fact, I doubt they'll get one out of it. Maybe 
one of those bands will some one of those bands will take it that much further but um with that, and that was the other thing like uh by the time we were well known and, and 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 people finally knew what we were about i am proud to say that for like a period of time um we represented like a certain lifestyle within this scene and that that skull was like uh if i saw somebody had that skull on them i immediately knew some things about them i just knew that certain we there were certain common experiences that were almost certainly there maybe not all of them but a good portion of them were likely to be there it became like a shorthand for you know a, a, a certain like series of uh adversities or you know a life, a certain social strata within the scene itself, a certain series of, you know, collective common experiences and shit like that. That skull became like a shorthand for that. And that I am, you know, that I'm grateful to have been part of something like that. How did Jeez. it feel? How did it feel for you? Because the, the release, the releases were pretty quick, but that's the, that was that 97 to to 2000 was an insane period for hardcore and growth. And I've always wondered, and you could uh, correct me otherwise, do you think that some of the Boston popularity from seeing the tree, uh, seeing the, the drop kicks, not trying to sound like the next Marauder, not trying to sound like not the dog Marauder or Stigmata, sure. but you were in this wheelhouse with Marauder all at war. You know, Death Threat hadn't started playing just yet. They started playing, but you were already beginning to do a little bit more of the open chord chorus songs. Where do you think your impetus or uh, influence was? And if it had anything to do with constantly playing with these heavy shows and these fights, like what was the impetus to start bringing more like traditional or, you know, influence punk rock style right into the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like a broader spectrum. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned one of them. It was actually the dropkick Murphys. Um, It was do or die. Their, their, their first record on um, Hellcat. Fucking Anthem. Um, Tuesday and Anthem. And, and this is the thing. It wasn't because it. I loved it. I did love it. But that wasn't what... Uh, I, I, I had no desire to sound like them, uh, though I did love the music. What blew me away about that album was I knew Ken really well. In fact, I was in the studio a couple of times while they were recording that. I couldn't believe that he had the balls to do things like a song with a tin whistle or like an acoustic song or like an Irish song turned into like an, you know, a a punk song. Like he just did all of these things that no other bands were doing. And what it kind of said to me was you can do whatever you want. You don't have to follow the rule book for whatever your style of music is. And at that point I stopped paying attention completely to what other bands were doing, except when I loved it. And then I would feel free to rip it. Or, or borrow from any, so at that point, like the sky opened up, like I can now, you know, I can now mine any influence or play with any influence that has ever floated my boat, anything that, you know, uh, lights my wick, I'm just going to fucking do it. So the songwriting suddenly opened up because I was allowed, you know, at the very beginning, when you start a band, you're just trying to emulate the couple of bands that are your favorite at the moment. And you're not trying to, you just, you know, but as, as you progress, like I, I, I suddenly felt open to like, Hey, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I don't have to follow any playbook or rule book. And it was liberating. It was, it was fun. And I started singing and I started writing all the music and all the lyrics. And I started, you know, I had been producing for a while. I'd always been writing all the music. I'd always been writing about 
a third to a half of the lyrics. But by this point, by Revenge on Society, there's some old songs re-recorded on that, but any of the yeah. new stuff I, I have now done top to bottom. And Exile, like I said, I didn't even let them know where those songs were going. I just uh, taught the drummer how to play the songs and put it all together in the studio. That At that point, I wasn't even sharing what was going on anymore. Richie from Wisdom and Chains, who's like one of my best friends. We did a podcast and many things. It also was in Crutch. Mm. He will tell you that that is the the crown jewel in the discography of Blood for Blood. My favorite and, record. And, and, and he to this day is like, this is this is the record for me. This was it. And he's like, you know, and I and I and I think about it like at the time, you know, uh, I remember seeing I remember seeing Dropkick with some hardcore bands. I remember seeing Dropkick start getting bigger. And I remember being told, Mike's not in the band no more. Al, Al Bar from the Bruisers and Dropkick. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Like, I'm looking at my head like, Al Bar's in this fucking band. Like, how's he going to do it? And um, I just thought it was kind of a uh, cultural influence. Like, okay, you know what? Like, let's let's put our fucking stamp, like we were talking about before, with the New York, with the metallic, with the heavy. You're like, you know what? Fuck this. You know, like, we're, we're starting. I think you guys did produce a sound which, I mean, would, again, later be emulated, duplicated, better or worse, depending. But I think that that record really did make you guys stand out above whatever the next Marauder or the next Scarhead or the next Manball record was going to be. And it kind of gave you a piece of a pie them other bands really wasn't going to grab because it had elements of melody, hooks, like real thoughtful songwriting. And this is where I get back to Jim Single. How much after your relationship with him grew? Because I'll tell you, I'm privy to uh, being at the Outpost in 2004 when Blacklisted did a single song for a split. Oh, I remember that too. It was fucking awesome. And Jim was like, oh yeah, Rob has books upstairs. And it feels like you were starting to build a relationship with Jim where it wasn't like we're time to record, but you were already like, hey, can I come in and start? Like, when did you start just having like a work relationship with Jim where you could kind of build this this like tank of songs up? Like, did that start around Exile or did that start after? Uh, it's, it's actually started before that, but re- real quick, just about like, you know, uh, Blood for Blood varying the... St- for, d- uh, t- shifting style from like some of the heaviest stuff that like Marauder and uh, Mabo was doing. Uh, that was obviously just uh, apples and oranges at that point. Like they were doing their thing, just different styles, different sounds and stuff like that. Uh, Madball and uh, Jesus, Marauder was one of the few bands that I would always go nuts in the pit for. And uh, Madball to this day, um, I, I don't want to, you know, say anything too off the hook or like uh, too insulting to anybody, but Madball to me was the real biohazard. They were the band I could believe in. They were like, you know, super groovy stuff like that, but there was not, there, there were no credibility issues with Madball. Like I believed in them. I still do. Like I watched, I watched Freddie when, uh, at the show that you booked, uh, at the, uh, uh, Union Transfer, this hardcore. Yep. Yeah. When Ramala did the blood for blood set, I was like, this dude is like visibly, like he's like the visible representation of New York hardcore to me when he's on stage. When yeah. he's like flying around, like I'm like, that is New York hardcore in one person. If I had to pick one, it'd be obviously Roger or Vinny would be a good candidate too. But like that dude epitomizes it. But um, Siegel is my, Jim Siegel was the closest friend music brought me like from that I, that I got from music. That guy taught me more than I can. Like, first of all, I had some of the best times of my life with him. Just me and him in the studio working on music. Like those were the best times of my life. 
like if I look back up to date, um, as far as creativity and music goes, which is largely a uh, heart-rending, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking experience on the whole, but they were some of the best experiences of my life. And he is the closest friend music that, you know, music gave me, not from like the scene or like how, like just doing music. Like uh, I, I love that guy. And like I said, for years, he was the secret weapon, like his production, you know, he, he could make anything sound good and blood for blood challenged his skills early on. Later on, we were better. Like I said, like exile is, is, is my favorite record for a ton of personal reasons. Outlaw is the best sounding and it's probably got the best songs on it and the best playing. And I still love all those songs, but the exile while doing it, I had this feeling of like, something's happening here. I'm doing something. This is new. This is like, this ain't nothing else. Like, I just had this like feeling. I remember the excitement of it. I remember, and I, it, yeah, that, I, I'm sorry. That, I didn't wrap that up well. I'm kind of babbling right oh, now. No, no, no. You're, you're on track because you're talking about the, the creation of Exile. And I and I think it's pertinent to say that like the Jim Siegel relationship, like when you were, by the time you were, we, we went to that studio, you had like a book of like non-used lyrics. And we like looked at like a tome, like, Oh shit, these are Rob lyrics. Like, you know, like don't fuck any you know, like it was just cool to see that you you had like a spot in a secret room where like that was like a spot for Rob to do his thing. And I realized this is sacrosanct. Like this is something that isn't like, oh, it's time for a blood for blood record. Let's go in. Like I could tell you milled away at this. Like you you grinded these songs down to a fine point at that place. Oh yeah. And I'll, t- I'll tell you something, they couldn't have happened without Jim either, because as a producer, he knew I had like he, he used to always insist. I would have been happy to say albums produced by Jim Siegel, but he used to always insist you better title it uh, credited as album produced by Siegel and co-produced by Rob. And I was like, why? Cause he didn't do that with all his bands, all the bands he recorded. He only did it with some. And I said, why do you insist on that? He said, because in your case, he's like, I'm not just taking your stuff and just putting it through my converter and making the guitars real big. He's like, you have a vision. He's like, and my, my job is to kind of help you find it. And he did. And without him, it wouldn't have happened. A lot of the stuff I might've been, because sometimes you got to fish around till you get it right. Another producer, uh, engineer, a person recording might've been, ah, this ain't work and try something else. He would like work with me and say, why don't you try this? So I hit it a little harder. Like it, it, he was just on, on every level, creatively, professionally, he was like one of the, uh, uh, one of the people closest to me that I came came to know through music. The, the only other person I've had a creative relationship like that with is um, Jason from Ramallah in the studio with him. Him and I can go back and forth. Like we, it's like we it's, people have witnessed that has witnessed us working and said it's like you guys speak some weird half telekinetic or telepathic language. Like it's like you're speaking some weird ass language. But uh, him and Siegel were the two guys that I worked with best. Do you think? Do you think because you're playing all these shows with these man balls and stay? I mean, you guys did a U.S. tour with the Stigmata and all this stuff. Do you think that when you're in the you're in the, when you're in the vehicle between shows, you're not fucking rocking the new man ball numero? You're you're desensitizing and kind of cleaning your palate. Was there anything that you were listening to that was different in the later stages of uh, Blood for Blood that also helped the influence? Oh yeah, I mean, like on we would be listening to. Um... I remember, I remember some of the records that were always in rotation. Uh, Apocalypse Dudes by Turbo Negro, the minute that came out. I was always listening to Oasis, like always. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, 
uh, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I would listen to the Beatles. They'd get tired of them sometimes. The Monkees, bullshit like that. Uh, but I remember like for like stuff more in our scene. All we listened to Bone Crusher like almost twenty four seven. Like I said, like uh, Turbo Negro. Um, what were some of the other ones? But yeah, we didn't in- listen to what. What's up? No, no, continue. I'm sorry. Oh no, uh, it, it, we we would listen to you know, I on, on my own like I listen to shit that um, like I said like you too like fucking uh, we listen to a lot of the Smith shit like that. But we weren't yeah we weren't listening to a lot of heavy stuff. But I didn't really like that has nothing to do with it one way or the other because I I couldn't have given a fuck less what the other guys in Blood for Blood were listening to. They had nothing to do with the music. Like after a certain point, like I did, they were, I was indifferent to their presence. Um, sorry. Like it, I didn't know. I mean, and, and it's important because I think, and this is going to sound crazy or maybe like sometimes a band has to have this fucking song with like, I, I call it like the soup. Like, Oh, well this guy has this idea. It may not be right for the fucking song. And there's been great ideas that have been foiled Without a unilateral, this is the one guy. But the, the sometimes the bands with the sole songwriter, with the presence of mind, with an idea that's solid, will work better than if everybody kicks in and it it turns into a goulash. You yeah. know, like and, and I mean, you've been in Europe, you know about fucking goulash. Yeah. So sure. let's talk a little bit about the 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 changing tide in the way hardcore was when you're in a demo, you're doing everything self. You know, you're relying on the honor of the bandmates and everybody and uh, like financially. And then the booking agent shit comes in, the label stuff starts coming in. You're obviously making money. And this is a, this isn't just blood for blood. This is fucking VOD. This is, this is the trope that hits so many of the bands in the nineties is it was like someone found a hole. Like remember in um, old cartoons, the bad guy would cut a hole in the money bag and pull it out. Yeah. Like logistically you guys were doing well. But just like every other 90s hardcore band, there was people living off the fat of the land and it was pulling a lot of these hardcore bands away from being excited about playing. So, oh, we're, you know, how the fuck aren't we doing a little bit better? Was that something that happened to you guys or were you guys, how did you feel about it as things were blowing up and the victory stuff? Like, what was your presence of mind as far as like getting bigger and were you seeing results? Were you able to do stuff or was it still hard for you to be Rob Lynn because what Blood for Blood had going on? Um, I mean, this is, we're going to get into the area where like, uh, that, that stuff, like, just like was, was so crushing on like every level. Like I would put up with anything from anybody. I would know that people were fucking me right next to me, people in the organization or like right next to it or whatever. I would put up with anything provided the endeavor kept happening and kept moving forward. I just wanted it. As long as the music was still happening, I would put up with it. Um, we didn't really, the, the potential for money really showed up. We were getting by, um, our guarantee was, uh, you know, by, by 2004, 2005, we would be making money where at, at the end, you come back and pay your bills and shit like that. But the real turn happened. Uh, the real money became, we, we became aware it was available when they came back without me around like 2010, I was even talking about like 10 years before, like the river on the first breakup when you started focusing on Ramallah. Was that, was that something because of Europe? Like what was going on? Cause a lot of the bands that I've had on the show when we've talked about, you know, big labels, there's big expenses. 
you got a manager, you got a booking agent and everybody's siphoning out. And I wonder how much that affected your ability to keep pushing forward because there's all these people that are in the gang, but they're not, they're not pulling their weight, but they're pulling money. Was that a situation for you guys or did it come not till later on? Uh, that was, that stuff was there, but at the time, the people like, like the, the manager and the booking agent at the time, they were doing their jobs. Like they were they they were worth their cut. Um, there wasn't a lot of money at that point. Like, uh, you know, um, we guarantees got better after the drop kicks tour. Like they, they were enough to be excited about them. Like, you know, get a couple of grand or something like that, sell some merch. So you'd come home, for, you'd especially come home from Europe with some money. Um, uh, but even us toys, you come back with some money. Um, the, the real money though, like guarantees that started to get offered and stuff for the comeback years later, that's yeah. that, when it really kind of exploded. But so uh, that was the thing. I didn't know if that was the impetus for the first slowdown of the band. Oh, um, I mean, there's a, there's a million reasons, you know, like I, I, I don't want to, it's I'm, I'm no, just, you know, the bad talk. I'm just trying to like get a presence of mind or where you're at. Cause I know at this stage, this is a huge part of your life. So there had to be some emotional impact to have you change not creatively, but this is what you've been doing. You know, you've been doing this since 94. How did you pull the, you know, we're going to slow down a little bit. Like where did like, you know, like where was your head with that? Oh, well, as far as like, there were a couple of phases with that. Um, but the main thing was in two, it's funny. We, we came, we came to these topics obliquely, which is funny because, um, I've been very bitter about music lately. My feelings towards it are like incredibly toxic. And I'm at, to be honest, I'm actually at the, for the first time in my life, music's been, I, I, I was started a video, uh, put a video up about a week, week before the spoken word, which was last week. So it's the most recent one where I said, I'm a music addict. <clears throat> you know, everybody knows I've had issues with alcoholism and, and drug addiction and shit like that. But I, I was, you know, saying I'm a music addict. I didn't really go into it. I, I thought it was something that would come up tonight. Um, but because of the path we took, the negative shit didn't come out. We, we actually talked about the fun stuff. Um, you know, I've, I finally reached, I have finally reached a point where um, I feel, you know, frustration. I've been frustrated for 10 years um, for since, since, since the shit happened with Buddha, maybe eight years. Like, um, uh, I think I finally reached a point where it's no longer just frustration. I'm like defeated. Like I don't even have the desire. It's not worth it. I'll, I'll, like when I came back and started doing music again, I, I walked away in two, at the beginning of 2007 because I had to get clean or I had to die. It was one of the two. I had to get clean and sane or I had to kill myself or die of what I was doing. It was one of the, it was one of the other. I gave myself a year. I've told this story many times, 2000, end of 2006, after the Ramallah tour in Europe. I think it was Persistence tour or something like that. No, it was a death before dishonor. I came back to Boston. I gave myself a year. I'm like, you're going you're gonna to take one year. You're going to get legitimately clean, not keep drinking a little, not keep fucking around with this or that. You're going to get genuinely clean. You're going to get into fucking psychiatry, recovery, whatever you got to do to get sane and, and try to get your shit together gave myself one year. And if by the end of that year, after giving it a legit full throttle try, I was going to blow my fucking head off. Ironically, the year came by. I didn't even remember the anniversary. I was doing so much better. I didn't even remember because at the first six months, I was counting down the days, six more months and I can fucking eat a bullet. Uh, that was the first stop for me. That's when I stopped and walked away for years. The only reason I came back around like 2005 is because I wanted to put new music out. Shows are great. I love them. 
but if I don't play one again, I won't care. Like it, 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 to me, they're part of serving the larger effort of making new music. Like I, I know all the other guys, they love getting on the stage and having people yelling and cheering and buying the drinks. I like that stuff. But if I don't do it again, that's not where the juice is for me. That's not where it all lives. It all lives and breathes for me with creating new music, walking into a building and coming out with something that didn't exist before. Well, none of that's happened over like the last eight years. Yeah, had like one record come out. I had like one seven inch come out. I'd like, you know what I mean? There's these little things, but it, it's never reached a point where I'm getting music out again. That's the only reason I wanted to do it. And it's reached a point where like, I don't think I want to do it anymore. It's not, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. And this. So many things to get into that would lead to that. And I don't want to sound like a bitch session, but uh, it's be, it's become like, I can't believe I've reached a point where the drive is actually like, you know what? You, you, it causes a lot of heartbreak for me, for me. It's like a very heartbreaking thing. Or, or it, music has caused me more pain than drugs and alcohol, more frustration than drugs and alcohol. And and that should be the case. You know what I mean? Like that that shouldn't be the that's case. That's supposed to be the relief. Yeah, that's supposed to be the relief. Don't get me wrong. There have been great highs, but there were also great highs with the alcohol and drugs too. Um, if I'm if, if I look at it analytically, if I look step back the way I had to step back and look at my drug use and my alcohol abuse, uh, I feel like you know it's 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 not a good thing. I, I I'm I'm stammering. I. I the, no, no, you're, 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 you're kind of you're kind of going all the train of creating a thought as you're rolling. Yeah, and I mean it, it makes sense. Um, for me, I look at I remember when Ramallah the project came out, and I was driving down to see Blood for Blood. And I, I was so awesome that you said all this stuff about Manball because Manball had did a return a return. Freddie had did some time. Oh, they yeah. were coming back. Yeah, and the fucking show in DC was Blood for Blood playing with Madball and Death Threat and Striking Distance. And to this day, it's my favorite show I've ever been in DC. My favorite DC hardcore show. That the, was that at the Capitol? Yeah, it was a big fucking room. That, you know what? I'm going to say that was my favorite show of all time as well. I'm going to jump in with you on that. That was a show. I mean, I always tease Aaron from Death Threat because he gets up on stage in this fucking hot giant stage with a hoodie and a full Carhartt and does a whole set. And you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, like <laughs> what the fuck is going on with this fucking guy? But there was still that fire in blood for blood at that time. That was like one of them shows where it was just like, that was the, the first time you saw, I saw blood for blood in a thousand plus capacity room in a long time. And like you were saying in the early two thousands, it was getting scary. People yeah. were like, I don't want to go to a blood for blood show, but yeah. that show had a different vibe. And you guys got up there and it was just something special. And then I remember we played like a benefit show with you guys in uh, Western Mass and stuff like that. But I really think that it was when you and I toured together and you were doing Ramallah and we were doing Shadow Realm. Oh, yeah. You, you were really on a kick of like, I just smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. It was like me, you and Jeff G every day hanging out with Mike. And you're, 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 you're I thought you were almost in like a palate cleanse of like, Whatever was going on, blood, 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 I want to do this Ramallah tour. Oh, yeah. And you were really, really on your shit. Like, yeah. live, you were on your shit. Every day we hung out, we talked, you know, like, um, and it was great to be around that. And then I remember hearing, like, you were having a, your heroin issues, and it was like, I felt like, fuck, like, what, like, what can we do here? Because I literally spent fucking uh, an entire summer rolling with you every day, being like, 
nah, this fucking guy's on the fucking, like, he's on the level. Like, this is fucking, like, Ramallah was picking up pace. You had a fucking sick lineup. Like, everything was going. And then I heard that you had to step away from blood for blood for that. And it was like, this is the the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. This is what can happen. Yeah. And I also, I watched you. It's got to be hard. We're now talking about a, almost a, if you count from the demo, but we talk about from like the time when you got, we toured together, you had almost 10 years of going from being like the guy in blood for blood to some guy in a fucking parking lot with a tattoo is going to come up and pour their whole fucking soul into you and yeah. almost punish you. And I remember seeing you kind of like, you wanted to be there for that person, but it was a lot to deal with. How did you deal with the fan base as these people started really putting their weight unasked for this weight of like, this is what's going on. And it's like, on one hand, you're the, you're the savior. You're the impetus of like, they have this background. So they think they can connect with you. How did you deal with that as you're going through your own struggles, as these people coming and bearing their soul to you every night? Cause I remember I'd see you in this entrenched conversation. Like, do we save him? Or do we like, like it was getting hard, man. Yeah, it, that honestly, that stuff, I used to carry that shit around with me big time. And it the, the way I dealt with it was um, I drank whiskey until my cerebellum was smothered or I shot something into my arm. Um, and I, it was funny because I would make myself, I would hide from that stuff. Like I'd hide in the van and just read. I'd make myself as, try to stay away from it. But if somebody got to me, I gave them the time because I felt like if... I, I, if, if for whatever reason that person do due to something I chose to do, which was the music or whatever, anything attendant to it, elected me to be the person to tell them stuff, I was obligated to do so, provided they did it in like, you know, a reasonable, respectful manner. I'm not going to have somebody, you know, some cokehead screaming at me or some shit like that. But um, I felt obligated, like, look, I chose to make this stuff that this person responded to. If this is that, this is... I, I am obligated to, to listen and I damn well would, I would apply myself to it, but I did carry it around and it certainly darkened my worldview. Now I'm much more capable of dealing with that, like much more because I now have like I've gone through, I had to make so many changes in my own life to stay clean. Um, I did, you know, I, 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 I did have a fuck up like three years ago, but I basically been clean. Oh, no, not basically. I don't want to send any mixed signals about that. I have been clean since then. Um, it's, it's almost, I, I forget what the exact date was. It was like November, 2019 or 2018, 2018, November, 2018. Shit. Don't want to lose a year. Uh, but prior to that, I had a bunch of time. Uh, that stuff I'm much more comfortable with. That stuff is not punishing to me anymore. Um, but at the time it really was because my own worldview at that time was so incredibly bleak and, and, you know, uh, nihilistic. Um, I still walk with nihilism, but, um, that stuff doesn't bug me as much. Well, I know the the specifically that the the full LP with Ramallah was really a lot of aggression, you know, and it was like, you, and there was a lot of really poignant like points made, and I I felt like when we would see you guys, we would obviously see the set every night. You would have, I think, you ex- exercise some of the stress and some of the stuff that you had in your head during that tour, and um, but I wonder if just being even though you're doing Ramallah being attached to the blood for blood fan base, you're stuck with these people who are like, come good drink with me. And they, you know, they've got a larger opinion of like what else you want to do. Not realizing like, maybe this guy just wants to be alone and chill. <laughs> maybe he doesn't want to drink for fucking 12 hours, you know, or let's get into a fight. You're raw for blood for blood. Like 
it, it, there had to be some fucked up expectations that you were like dealing with. We're like, I don't want to fill this fucking guy's expectation of who I'm supposed to be. You yeah, know? I, I can usually, like I said, genuine, like sincere attempts at communication, no matter how painful the subject matter, I can usually deal with that. But I'll tell you what, yeah, my since I've become like genuinely clean and sober, my penance on earth is my living hell. I'm sorry, drunk people, but it's drunk people. Uh, having somebody in my face this close telling me the same thing over and over again and I can't get away, that is painful for me. I, I, and I, but you know what? It's my penance because I was that guy for fucking years. I was the three o'clock in the morning drunk dial. I was the guy cornering some guy and holding court and not reading social cues like the person crossing around and looking away. I didn't give a fuck. So that's uh, that's my karma. But, you know, as far as being bitter about music and um, I have a lot of bitterness. It is a very toxic thing for me. Um, and it, it, it like, like I've said before, like I'm not vindictive in my personal life, Joe. Like I don't get petty or vindictive with the people around me or anybody really in interpersonal ways. But with music, with professional matters like that or what I've elected to be my profession, whether I better whether I've been very professional about it or not is a different story. In those matters, I'm incredibly vindictive and I'm incredibly petulant. And there is an element of ego and there is an element of feeling like thwarted and like fucking, uh, you know, frustrated and stuff like that. But if I do the program thing, which I've learned to do over the years, what, what I mean by that is the 12 step program thing. Basically, like the AA and NA, the core of it is simply taking extreme ownership of your own fucking shit, your role in whatever happened. You own your shit. Can't control anybody else. Well, if I get serious about that, I can get into this venomous mindset about music. I can tell you about all the things that I resent about. I can tell you about the fact that I made record labels. Probably I did a, a loose estimate to be about $7 million. And I've made like 42,000 spread out over like the last 15 years from all of that shit. As far as royalties and stuff, I could bitch about all that stuff. But the truth is at the height of blood for blood, I got banged up and strung out. That's it. That thwarted that. When I finally got clean, I came back and did another band. Right as that was about to take off, I got banged up again. I had to take a bunch of years off. Finally got my shit back together. Now it's been harder since I came back and got clean. But you know what? A couple of years ago, I got banged up for another six months. So I can't get out of my own way either. And if I'm going to own my own role, I have thwarted myself at every turn. But it's like a conundrum. The very traits that drive me to this self-destruction are the very things when communicated that gave everything I did the power that it did. It's like this Gordian knot can't have one without the other. Yeah. It's a dance, you know, yeah. like the, the bands and the music and the outlet and your, your creative, you know, juices flowing, create this fucking cacophony of chaos where you're almost driven back to either drinking or shooting up. Because well, they come from those very places that drove me to the very stuff I'm trying yeah. to like express with the music are the very same things I was trying to medicate with the pin and the fucking the, the booze like they're inextricable. Uh, but it's just been the last couple of like last bunch of years. It's been hard because I'll, I'll never get the music that I got on deck recorded. I have now acknowledged that it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it ain't going to happen. And that is like a bitter pill for me to swallow. But again, I made the choices I fucking made. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, if I accept my own role in, 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 in what happened, I played a big part. I obstructed myself at many given times and you got to live with those things. So that's the, that's the stuff. That's the detritus you got to clean up after. It's, it's not without like comparisons to so many other musicians. Oh, of course. And, and exactly. I think it's very, it's a very cliche sort of thing. 
well, it, it's a it's a trope, and so I I have to I have to believe that it's either a, a nod to your pedigree that you're at that level where you're driven to these things because of all the other people that there has to be something in that creative mindset or the process or the things that happened before you became a creator of this music that, you know, as this success or this, you know, elation from people enjoying your music, bring it to this thing that has to be unwieldy or, you know, like you said, you know, like you have to take responsibility, but it's also, it's happened time and time again. So there has to be some fucking weird alchemy or formula that if you get to a certain point in writing that you're driven to these vices, you know, and you're a street kid, you grew up in the same kind of neighborhood we did. It's like, you know, heroin from the minute you're a kid, you know what a doped out dude looks like, you know what the needles are on the street are for yet you end up there and it has to be something. It has to be something in, in, in past trauma. It has to be something that's almost unavoidable. And it's, it sucks because the, you're, you're, you are Rob Lynn. So you are unique, but there are so many stories that are not unlike yours, you know? Oh, that, that's the entire reason anything I've done has resonated is simply because I can take some of this target stuff and express it in ways that are, you know, uh, uh, not simple terms, but um, bring it down to, you know, language that anybody that's dealt with the same can understand. Um, and yeah, I mean, if we, if we want to get really like turgid, um, you know, the autistic creative thing, that's always been associated with madness drugs, alcoholism. I believe that bipolar and creativity are, are one and the same. I think they're going to find out they're basically inextricably like the same thing. Uh, I, you know, I think they're like, I think they're the same. Um, but yeah, if you look at it, like the, the, the meta thing, like, yeah, creative people are always higher, more prone. And, you know, there was a lot of shit in my past that whether I was creative or not would have caused me a lot of anguish um yeah i mean that's just like a it's like that whole lord byron thing i fall upon the thorns of life i bleed i even use that line and in, in oh, it's the- it but it's an important thing because like again take you out of hardcore and you probably find the noodle quicker that's yeah. the fucked up part that's yeah. the fucked up part of this i agree take, with you. take you from never stepping in the channel and you're in the needle in three years because the overwhelming the shit you got in your subconscious that you buried buries you oh or, yeah or you have this large staving staved off process where you're going through this band thing and then what happens is you push the shit down so far a weird trigger still brings that back up and yeah. because you're a street kid that's the fucking release and it's it's it sucks because it's 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 happened so many times i mean i've had eddie leeway on the show i've had plenty of people we've talked about using before and it's sad because it's always the pedig- the high pedigree, the creative, the driven that gets stuck in this conundrum, you know? And it's it's not like a woe is you, but it's like this is a process that happens. You don't get the creation. You don't get the creativity. You don't get this without that, you know? Oh, yeah. Perception, um, imagination, um, creativity in general, that sword's pointed at both ends. It cuts It cuts both ways. This And yeah, I, I, I agree, literally agree with everything you said and it's funny that it's a it was a particularly bitter pill to find myself uh, i'm hooked on the opiates because i used to watch the smackheads in the projects they were there from you know age six on we all knew who they were and 
I, I had said to myself a million times, I am never going to be one of those motherfucking guys. I want, I, I didn't like them. They weren't as bad as the cokeheads. Cokeheads suck. Chewing their gum and fucking telling you some fucking lie to try to get money out of you, barking at you, whatever. The, the smackheads were just like scared. The junkies were just like scarecrows. I said to myself, I'm never going to. And I remember there being a point in Europe we had just played in front of like fucking 28,000 people with Sepultura at one of those big door fests or some shit like that. And I was on my balcony at the hotel, just like drink, like having a drink and saying, this ain't bad for a fucking project kid that was supposed to stay on the same corner for the rest of his fucking life. And I got away from all that fucking the drugs and shit like that. Um, it was, it was ironic and painful for me to get caught in that trap, but I think you're right. I would have got caught a lot earlier without music and without hardcore in general for broadening my horizons. But you know what would have been even sadder than that? It would be that I stayed in that little town my entire life in that narrow-minded, bigoted little mindset that everybody had with no knowledge of the larger world, hating everybody that wasn't from Charlestown. Because we did like that, like those little towns, like, you know, they hated everybody that distrusted everybody that wasn't from the little town. I would be up the same corner, hanging with the same people, spouting the same shit. That would have been even more tragic. Uh, you know, when I get, when I get like really bitter about music, I can reprogram myself. And, you know, there's times when I get like so bitter about it that I say to myself, I wish I could go back. Like when I, you know, somebody sends me something like, you know, your music meant a lot to me. Just wanted to tell you at the worst times, I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to sound like a prick, but at the worst times, when I get that at the wrong time, I want to be like, yeah, that pays my fucking rent. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, that helps me out. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I wish I could go back and fucking make another choice and take this supposedly really important music away from you just out of spite. Just I'd go back and do something else with my life. And I would definitely do it to take it away from the other band members. That's for sure. When I feel like that. But the truth is, if somebody were to say to me right now, you know, if, if I were to say to myself, if I were to die today, I wouldn't change anything. It's 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 only fears about the future where I'm like, I should have done something different. But if somebody said, you're going to die tonight, I would die pretty satisfied with my life, considering. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to be someone. And 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 I know that you're you're thinking about this. Probably will probably hit me up and be like, oh, man, should I said that I wrote everything? But it's important for people to understand this because the worst part of Blood for Blood becomes the people who had the least part of the creation trying to pull the creator from what it is. Oh yeah. I had a lot of bitterness about that. And, 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 and it, 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 we, we can, we, we can walk that path or we don't have to like for the, the sake of your story. This is a hard thing. And this is why I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you had that time in exile and you had that time with Jim because it oh, needs yeah. to be said, this isn't, well, you know, you know, I, I've been in, I, I'm a, I'm a, not a very good musician, but I showed up. I had some input, but the people wrote those songs, wrote those songs. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. However, this however, at the same time is it was an interesting thing to see Blood for Blood having a insane fan base to the point where nonchalantly it was like, well, we're going to replace Rob for right now till he's ready so we can hit it. And at the same time, hearing this story in the in the in our in this conversation, looking at it from this lens now, because we're talking about ten years ago, you know, yeah. we're really talking about ten years ago. That's ten years ago, I'm like, well, maybe he can't tour. Like, you know, we're hearing about what happened in Europe and, and needing time off. 
it seemed a lot more or it was sold a lot more like you were sitting at home like, well, the boys were out getting this and I just need to take it. it you know, it sounded a lot better than what it ended up being. You know what I mean? Well, from from a friend, from a friend and a promoter and from here, you know, from friends booking you, it sounded a little bit more amicable. Like, oh, yeah, well, Rob's got to do his thing, but he's totally with the whole situation. And we don't have to delve into it. But oh, see, I'm looking at your face and I'm seeing it like earlier on. We're talking. You're smiling. Now you're grimacing more. Your 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 brows furled, and I don't want to hurt you because we've been friends for. And you know we had a great time, it's conversations, but also you don't want to take it down a darker path. But it needs to be said that to me it was presented like you were a little bit more good with the whole situation of not being in those shows for that time. Yeah, well, I'll tell you two things. Uh, first, from what from what you just said, um, I would retort to uh, respond to two things. First, I don't have any problem telling anybody. Yeah, I wrote all that motherfucking music and lyrics and produced it and came up with the goddamn skull and all the shirt slogans and every other motherfucking piece of creativity. After so, I had to be fair on the demo and the first record, Buddha and I shared lyrics. Uh, he wrote some lyrics. I wrote some lyrics. I wrote all them. Like I said, I always wrote all the music. I did all the production. After that point, it's all me. I have no problem spilling that out. What I was what I was saying, apologizing for bringing that up, is I don't want to sound like I'm like bitching. Like I, I don't oh. like to sound like that. But the other thing was, yeah, that wasn't as amicable uh, that that them going out without me because at first I did not bless it. They sent me a certified letter saying, "Hey, if we don't hear from by, you by this point, we're going out without you." Now I had been waiting for that at that point. Um, I figured they was there. What was the what would be the impetus for you waiting? Like what was what you, was there signs ahead of time? Around. I know that the at the time my belief was that. Um, I don't want to get like too into the weeds on this. Yeah, yeah we don't have to get too into weeds, but just like you said that, like I was waiting. We yeah. we don't have to get granular. We just like gloss over it. I, I just knew that they were capable of doing it, like to, you know, taking those songs and going out without me. I just knew that they could talk themselves into doing that. And when I got that certified letter, that was the single darkest day of my life. I wept, and I called Charles down uh, to see if I could get a gun. Uh, I was off my rocker over that. But then when they had, it, it, so that's the darkest day. But then about whenever they announced, they said, you know, uh, they, they announced like a week later or two weeks, I forget how much that was the happiest day of my life because basically for like the next week, they got so hammered online. I didn't, I didn't think that was going to happen. I thought people would just be like, Oh, cool. Blood for blood's back. Cool. They got so pilloried. I'd never seen a reaction like that. People were like, this is bullshit. They're taking that guy, taking that guy's music out without him. Like they got punished. So I felt great for those couple of days. And in the meantime, I had talked myself. I, st I started weighing it again via the program. I was like, well, they put the time into the music. Of course, they want something out of it. I said, um, you know, I, I, I want to get back into music. This is a way we can do it. So what I did is I went to them and said, look, I own the publishing. So you got to give me something. But if you guys want to go out without me, I can't tour right now. I simply can't. I said, I can't. So I'm not, it's not safe. I'm not, I'm not trading any more of my blood and, and livelihood and, and sanity for, for you guys or the band or anything else. But if you want to go out and play the songs, they said, give me a little piece. There's like a manager's fee. Basically, that's what I took. I said, I'll keep writing the music the way Brett Gurwitch did with Bad Religion. And more importantly, I'll write something in the press that sanctions this. So you guys stop getting your heads cut off. So I did that, but yes, so it was amicable. It did end up being as amicable as it sounded because I did choose to do this willingly and I did want to do it, but initially it wasn't. When it first happened, I was, Furious doesn't cover it. There's no, betrayed all of those words, it doesn't cover it. Like I felt raped, 
uh, as much as you can without actually having something inserted inside you. I don't want to compare the two because rape's always rape. It's way worse. But I felt like completely like this is the last kick in the head. Um, and they would have their way of looking at it, too. They're not going to see it my way. I understand that. But um, so it did end up amicable. And I did. I was committed to the new order, that new thing. Like I was writing music and I was going to see it through. And I was even planning on coming back, as you know, with the two. Yeah, shows. I remember hearing that. Yeah. It, that got derailed because of the thing that happened with the other singer. But um, yeah, it, you know, that, that, that's, that was how that chronology went. So to zoom out from this whole thing, I, I look at this like as, again, as a friend and also an observer here first, you're not in blood for blood, but you they're playing live. Then it was like, just when you're ready to start rolling back into this, yeah, the Buddha stuff happened. Yeah. And here you are fighting with your sobriety. And it had to be hard to not run back to that because here you are, you know, I'm ready. I'm going to do this. Like what were the things that you were doing to stave this off and to try to keep this up? Like, where was your mindset? Like once that, like not so much, we don't have to get any of the details with the booth because sure. I like the fact that people in hardcore still talk about it on message boards. Like it's some crazy shit. Let them, let them, let them never know what the fuck happened. I don't care about that. Yeah. I want to know what happened to Rob when I knew you were getting ready to come back and do these shows and this fucking thing happened, where was your mindset? How did you keep things like, where was your bearings and how did you move forward once this whole thing happened? I mean, I, the only thing, you know, I actually took it pretty much in stride um, because at that point, my, like my recovery was really strong. I was really uh, active in, you know, staying sane and staying sober. So and my attitude towards the whole, what the first thing I said when I heard what happened, other than my after the initial shock, was, Jesus, I I would have thought I'd be the one to ruin these shows. That was like <laughs> the first thing yeah. I said. Uh, and then the, on a, as a corollary, as far as the band itself, I wasn't that shocked. Like not not I was shocked by the, the allegations and what I had heard. Oh yeah, that shocked me. But as far as blood for blood exploding in some expect spectacular way, I just considered that par for the course. I, I knew it would eventually happen. I just figured it would have been me. That was the person behind it. I was like, wow, I feel like I dodged a bullet here. Like I'm not the one behind this horrible car crash. I honestly took it in stride. I didn't expect much from it at that point. Um, I never really do. Um, by that point, I was just inured to the fact that this thing is just a, like a, a, a cursed <laughs> i'm actually glad you said that because i feel like so many different bands and i mean i'm a big fan of not only rock and roll but heavy metal and you see certain timelines where bands come back and they try to do things and it's the timing's not right or the memberships isn't right you know like and, and timing is has to be key like the whole story about blood for blood building up is timing yeah and it's like now you're trying to you know like they're trying to kickstart this thing going. And of course this fucking happens. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it wasn't, it was a couple years later that you blessed everybody with the, this is hardcore Ramallah set, which so many people were just happy. And I uh, hope it did something for you just so you see, even though all that stuff happened, people still love your music and people still love you and people still respect the band, regardless of what the hell it was called. People love them songs. And so I know we were talking about your recovery and shit like that, but that there had to be there had to be a sunny side up seeing people react positively. Oh yeah, to songs that you hadn't been able to play in so long. Oh yeah, that 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 
that was a blast like that on a whole bunch of levels. That was like a high point. Um, you were cheesing the entire night. You were yeah. cheesing, watching the bands on the side. We made sure you played with all your friends. So it was fun. And then like you were cheesing the next night. And you're like, dude, this is fucking like, I hadn't seen you that happy in so long. The only thing I was bent about was I lost my voice for the Ramallah set. Not because I did two shows in a row, but because Jason kept from Ramallah kept cracking the AC, cranking the AC every time I went to sleep. I'm like, my throat's <laughs> fucked up. What are you doing? He's like, he's like the way I used to be. I used to be like an air conditioning zealot, but I, I that was a blast. I watched, I was like, seriously considering like doing a cartwheel into the audience, just watching Madball. Like I went up to Freddie afterwards. I was like, I feel like I'm fucking 18. I was like this, like they were so fucking good. Like I was like, I feel like I'm fucking like 18 again, man. And he's almost my age anyway. He used to be fronting the band when he was like 15, 16, 17. Yeah. Uh, it was just awesome. That, that whole night felt like vindication, um, a, a million d different forms of like, um, uh, just uh, grateful, just grateful. Like there were things that I tried to bring together to accompany that weekend outside of the show itself that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. But um, uh, the show itself was everything I hoped. And yeah, it, 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 it most importantly, it, it just appropriated. It allowed me to say, Hey, this is my fucking music. You know what I mean? I can do it. It was definitely there was a there was a special energy that night. I think um, when it comes down to the whole blood for blood thing is it, it is exactly what you said. It's a Gordian knot. You know, there's no other way to explain it. And to to explain to the person who bought a CD and just likes the band, it'll it'll actually fuck up. Like, wait, what's going on? Wait, it's 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 not just a soap opera, but it's like divorce court and a soap opera all in one. <laughs> You better believe it, man. It's funny you just fucking said that, Joe, because at one point, uh, this is something that used to go, like, even leading up to them sending me that letter, they always had the wrong idea, the other guys. And I remember Ian asking me about it because I would, whenever, I would always get baited back into Blood for Blood. For some reason or another, I'd kind of get coaxed back into it. I'd kind of get, and anytime I would walk away, I know that uh, Buddha used to say, Rob's fucking spineless, fucking spineless again. And, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not a great guy for confrontation. I tend, the fact that I stuck a pin in my arm and drank fucking Jack Daniels from a fucking beer hat on a regular basis for about 10 years indicates that I'm somewhat avoidant, but they misunderstood. And I tried to explain this to Ian one night we were talking and this is on amicable terms. Ian's my friend, but he said, why did you keep, you know, he was telling me about how, what booty used to say and shit. And I was like, you guys misunderstood, man. You guys misunderstood. You guys kept thinking I was having like a hissy fit or I was pouting. I was gone, dude. Like I wanted to be done. I looked at our relationships, not the music, the music I can do in my sleep, but the relationships. I looked at them like a divorce. Like we have irreconcilable differences. We cannot fucking coexist together. I'm leaving. They kept thinking that it was like, I was like sulking or something like that. No, I started four bands or whatever, three bands or something to put that behind. The crazy thing is I should have just appropriated it. From day one, I shouldn't have done all these other projects. I just sort of started another band that sounded exactly like Blood for Blood, giving it a name like, I don't know, Wasted Youth Crew or something of the blood, and just did that music right from the rip, just taking it right then and there. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to hide behind the brand. 
You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to hide behind like it was like the whole Pink Floyd. I'm not liking it myself to Pink fucking Floyd, but it was like Pink Floyd and Roger Waters. He got tired of the corporation. He just wanted to go do his music. That's so that was that was that, I guess. But again, when I get surly like this, I remind myself, dude, you're the one that's really responsible for the breaks, though. Again, like you said, Gordian not. You can't really prize the good from the bad with something like that without cutting it in half and looking inside. But um, the truth is, like, I got to own my own role. Like, I, I, I fell hard a bunch of times and it obstructed things. I think that you just answered one of the questions that eventually I thought would come up was like, why not just sidestep all the, the dramatics and do the and do the wasted youth crew? But I think that was a great way to explain it. There's there's an interesting thing and, and it happens a million times in hardcore. On a weird note, we're dealing with it now with antidote New York and <laughs> that whole thing. There's an antidote with Louie, and then there's an antidote with uh Drew Stone. There's uh, a um there's the Harley versus the Cro- there, there's always gonna be a fan base that wants the record that they love. And then there's the people that are attached to personages. Yes. But the fucked up thing is you're both the guy who wrote the record and the personage, (laughs) you know, like, you know, like, and, and for people who don't know, like even Buddha at his height of, you know, pre all the crazy shit, he was a man of few words, unless he was really drunk, you know, like, like you could hang out next to him. He might say 10 words to you unless he's drinking and he's like fucking around or as a bit, it was a big group of people. He got a little bit more like if we all friends. Yeah. But he's not going to pour his fucking heart out to you. But you make easy friends. You're a great conversationalist. You have a big thing. So it had to be weird to sit there and be like, this is all me, but I don't want it because of how poison the well is. And, I know, and I'm glad that you pointed that out because sometimes people go, well, why don't they just do it? You know, like, and, and, and I know personally that there's a lot of money always being thrown at blood for blood. Yeah. But the chaos factor of opening that fucking thing. It's 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 just like you said earlier. The juice isn't worth the squeeze when it comes to the fallout of like when the eyes start coming up. And I wonder how you feel now, looking at all of it, like where your perspective is is like it not like a from a promoter. Like uh, there's this video of Chris Lisk who does like the Rev Fest, and he asked Ian McKay on YouTube, "How much would it take for any for a minor threat review?" And he goes. Are you a fest promoter? <laughs> like, but it's not saying it's not saying how much would it take. But few people understand that it's not the money that doesn't bring blood for blood. There's so many other elements. Oh yeah, that keep blood for blood where it's at. What's 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 happened lately is just um, anytime there's momentum, something happens, and it's out of people's hands. Uh, it's largely been there's only so many times you can go through that where you get some momentum. And something out of the blue that's really kind of nobody's fault. Just act of God type shit happens and stalls it and stalls it. Now, there was a period where it was, I, I see it's hard for me to get into this because it's like open wounds, some of it, like. Um, yeah, gloss over what gloss over what doesn't need to be talked about publicly. And just, you know, you can just give a blanket statement. It's, I'm just here, like, getting your opinion more than anything. Yeah. Um, it. it, it <laughs> It would, yeah, where, where, where the whole thing sort of sits right now, it would be hard to get into it without getting. No, it's not so much sitting right now. I'm just saying, is as a perspective for you, yeah, there is a festival in Europe that would probably give you a crazy amount of money that you guys could probably all use, yeah, but that's not going to put four wheels under the Blood for Blood van and make it roll again, is what yeah. I'm getting at. 
don't have to get to the you don't have to get into the granular of like why isn't the band playing, but like people don't really get it. It's not the impetus of the or not the popularity of the band or the fan base. There's so many other moving pieces that have to be in place for this band to exist. Again. Oh yeah, that's for that's sure. what I'm getting at. I'm sorry. So many vectors have to come together and, and, and they don't and they haven't. And it doesn't appear that they're likely going to. And, you know, it's, it, it's just um, it's just disheartening. And since I am not serene about music, like I'm one of those people like when music was out of my like the, the, the most serene I was in my life was like from 2007 early. Like it was like January 1st, 2007 until I got that certified letter when music was just not even on my mind and I was just surviving. Like as soon as I get back in that mindset it's very turbulent for me it's very painful when things don't you know eh. um i i came back to put out new music that's the thing and it has just been one obstacle after another and um i'll probably just i don't know who knows drop it online no fanfare just bing um do you yeah. see yourself do you see yourself creating just not under blood for blood or trying something else because you have jason like where do you think you're going to go with this? Just step away. Cause it's, it's getting hard. Like where's your head? Yeah, because the thing is, like I, it, it became like, I realized I did want to finish the, the blood for blood story. That was where my focus really was because I mean, you know, the thing with blood for blood is like, as it, when I did, when the songs were written, I was much younger and I hadn't gone through many of the things I was going to go through. And there's all these turgid pro like promises to live this. I'm going to live this way and that way. And I'm going to fuck your rules and all this stuff. Well, it turns out I did exactly that. In hindsight, it's nothing to brag about. I don't think I was capable of living any other way. But, you know, with the with the band having a bit of a legacy, I'd like to finish those stories because there was a real dark side and a cost to living the way I lived. And a lot of people have been through it. I'd like them to hear, you know, uh, so they don't feel so they can feel a little less alone. But anybody that's at the edge, somebody younger, perhaps that's listening to that stuff and saying, yeah, I'm going to do this, too. Like to give them the chance to say, hey, Okay, but give it some thought because there's some costs associated with this living this way. I'd like to just finish the story. Here's how it played out. So that was my main focus. With that being this, if that's not going to happen, then I, I'm not really up for doing something secondary. Uh, I asked the, that. I I asked that because in part, and I'm glad you said about the the story of Blood for Blood. You guys left us with this EP. That's something serious. Not that you didn't have other material that came from Ramallah, like a lot more material later, but the blood for blood. I don't know if there's a song like Serenity and Hardcore. Oh, that was a weird one. That 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 EP. I forgot about that. And and I, and I'll tell you what's crazy is, uh, oh yeah, the the record is uh yeah the record is called Serenity, but yeah, specifically that hanging on the corner song is just like everything that a blood for blood like the next iteration of what blood for blood would have been in a song and i remember there was a lot of wild shit going on and we actually talked about it openly on the bridge nine on the my very first episode with bridge nine where there was an ep where there was a business decision with bridge nine that pissed off the distributor lumberjack oh, i remember so then lumberjack told andy king from thorpe we'll give you money to get that man ball record. And then we're going to help you get that blood for blood record. So B nine, like that's the level of weird shit that was happening in this distribution before it cut, you know, like literally where, you know, Andy King, he's like an old head to us. He, you know, from the Philly area outside, you know, like 
big guy who was always at shows. He eventually would put out a punishment record with us. But I remember him telling me, like, yeah, I have a blood for blood record. I'm going like, how is like Thorpe was like a smaller label getting it? But I remember that coming out and that song, that song just stuck out because it had so many crazy elements. It had the gang thing. It had, you know, the big shout outs, the big, the chorus. It had the sit. It had everything it is. And that was like, it kind of like the ellipsis, you know, yeah, like that's ellipsis for sure. Cause we, we, we were that. hoping there'd be another thing that would come. That's all I wanted to do. Like that's, I, I, I have so much music just sitting there and rotting. Like that's the one thing I don't lack for. And it's the one thing I'm not getting done. You know, it, it's just something that drives me nuts. But uh, there's so much stuff on deck. I could be putting out a song a month for the next, like for the next 200 years, maybe not that long, but there was some regrets with Serenity. I, I've, the album's grown on me. I didn't like it for the first couple of years after. Part of, that was that? part of it was I didn't, I didn't like that time period in my life. Um, you get bad associations. I have terrible yeah. with Ramallah records. Uh, the first two, anyway, the EP. and the, That was a bleak time in my life. But um, I, I wish there were three more songs on it. I wish there were three more heavier songs to balance it off. And I also, it at the time... I was still trying to blend too many influences. I was still experimenting with what's what. So I still like it. And it's funny because there's like this hardcore contingent about one out of 10 of the blood for blood people I run into to this day. are like, that's my album. I'm like, really? No shit. That's strange. But there's like a core of them. And they're usually people that are in recovery or in, that have kind of like cleaned up sobriety, like oriented people. But uh, there are, it's, it's, there's a few, the influences are a little bit, Flying all over the place on that one a little bit. So, I would have reined it in a little bit more. You may not have seen it, but at that stage, the American Nightmare world was starting to slow down a bit. And there was a different crowd of kids starting to come in 2004 and onwards. So that was a lot of people's first blood for blood records, too, which is probably another thing that fueled that. And it was just an interesting thing because obviously you had a cover on it. And, and I'm glad you said about the heavy stuff because I remember people like, it's not heavy enough. And I'm thinking like, I went from being a kid like I love the heavy down like evil sad blood for blood stuff, but there was a there's a, there's epic songwriting and hanging on the corner like everything's hit right, and it's like you hit all the if you if you wanted a prototypical what we thought from that era of blood for blood that was hit with it, and then so every time it's like, oh there's gonna be new blood for blood I'm always wondering like does Rob fuck with everybody and go back and drop something that's heavier does he get like when when you were thinking in the process of new blood for blood. Obviously, and I love that you said this. You're not the kid you were when you wrote the Hurt You demo. You're oh, not yeah. even the kid when you played, you know, what were you like, 21, 22 when you did the Revenge record? Uh, yes. Yeah. 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there, somewhere in there. And that's like that golden, there's a golden window where like some of the coolest music. Oh, I would, in no, I would have been 20. I, I, so I, that's that, nah, that's nah. that window. Somewhere between like 17 and 21. There's this like youth genius of writing some shit that you're like, wait, now that you're older, you're like, why would I write it that way? Like, even yeah. if you want it to, you're like, why would I write that fucking part that way? How, do you think that that stammered writing blood for blood stuff? Or do you think that you just, do you feel like blood for blood's core demographic or the, the box that you put blood for blood songs in, it'd be weird for you to write at this age. No, I, I don't actually. Cause um, the main thing with blood for blood was the lyrics. As long as there was certain, yeah, there was certain aesthetics 
that happened with blood for blood, certain sounds and they're easy. Like I, that stuff's like falling off a horse for me. Like the, the three songs that kill me that didn't come out uh, were the three ones that were going to come out on those weekends. They've been, people refer to them as the lost songs. Yeah. Those actually account for the lost time. Serenity was like an experiment. Yes. If you followed the line of like where blood for blood was going, you could have anticipated some of it, but I just overstepped just a little bit with that one. If I come back with something else, another a full length, I would have rectified that. I was just playing around a little bit too much. I got a little fast and loose on that record, but the three songs and the stuff I've written since, I would love it to come out. I would love it to come out because it does. It's where blood for blood. Like if you, it it accounts for the inter. It it picks up where it left off with the loss of time, both lyrically and musically accounted for, and um. I would, I would love for it. That's one of the reasons I choke on my own fucking heart dealing with this, the, you know, just dealing the with stuff. The whole, yeah. All the stuff. Yeah. The, the whole thing. Cause I just want the goddamn music to come out. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard. Like, and like I said, like I, I have every time there's been momentum, I've stomped on my own head and it's just difficult. But one of that's one of the reasons why um I, everything that I do now, I try to whittle it down to as few people and like, you know, people say like, why don't you work with that guy? I'm not trying to work with anybody. <laughs> like, I don't want to work with nobody. Um, I try to just do things that I can, that can't be obstructed. They can't be, nothing could get in the way. Nothing could interfere. Like yeah, there's no uh, rules by committee. There's not, it's just yeah. hey, this is yeah. now one of the things that I've always wondered about you is you have a, a, a name that, where a band would say, Oh, you know what we need to get has there ever been the thought of I just wanna I could you could go on the road and just play someone else's music? Or has that never been an interest to like and I'm using it as solely as an example. I'm not saying this is a thing. Like if the street dogs was a band that's defunct now. If they were like, Hey, we need a guitar player, has anyone ever approached you to like jump in and do a tour, or has that never been really a thing? Uh nobody's ever done it. Um I mean I'm, I'm sure I would, depending on the band. I mean depending on what I had going on, like, yeah. Um, like when we were working on the Ramallah record, um, the, the invisible one, I can't get into that though. I'm actually bound by something, but no, it's all good, man. Don't stress it. Uh, my brother Mark hit me up and was like, do you want to do some citizen saint shit? I'm like, dude, the timing's as bad as it could possibly be. Like we had done the citizen saint show in Boston around like two 2015 or something. And fucking one of the best experiences of my life. Like, and everybody else that was involved were like, hey, Mark, this is a good time. Let's start doing some shit with Citizen Saints. And he just floated off and did one of his things, uh, did, you know, did his own thing, which he which he does. He's got every right to. But I was like, dude, this the time for this was like a couple of years ago. Uh, it depends on the time. I'm not averse to it. But as far as like, you know, people have often said, like, you should produce other bands. You should go in the studio and work with other bands. Um, it, I could do that for certain, for certain I could do that, but it, that would be so band specific, like, cause I couldn't just, you know, I'd have to like it. I'd have to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're not just going to do it for the money. Yeah. And I certainly don't care about exposure or anything like that. Like, um, or getting my name around I don't care about that. Mark can be interesting. Cause like I had to, I had to like pull his arm to get Ducky Boys to play with uh I did Cockney Rejects and Sick of It All. And I'm Ooh. like, Mark, come on, man. I'm like, come on, man. He's like, 
all right, we're coming, like we're coming down for that one. Like, you know, it's like one of them things that you have to do sometimes. He's and, talking um, about bringing the Ducks back. I don't know if he's going to, but he, he's, yeah, talking good about, time. Well, he's talking about he, doing another record. He's talking about doing another record. That'd be a good time. And that was other thing. It's like, that's like another thing where, um, there was an entire, it's an entire generation of bands, especially, I don't know if you're hip to them, but like the Chisel and Chubby and the Gang from England, these kids oh, are yeah. like, like, you could easily sidestep hardcore and write some shit that I think would just be as equally received as a blood for blood record because of your pedigree and your songwriting. And I wonder if, do you think that your lane of songwriting is you think about a project? Like I want to write for Mala or I want to write for blood for blood. Like how does your mindset go when you do write? Uh, usually I just write the music and then assign it to whatever band I think it fits with best. Sometimes I write with one in mind or the other, but like the Ramallah and blood for blood stuff for like a long time, they could have just gone in either directions. Obviously when you hear the final product, it's been designated, which one's going with which. And at that point I really jazz it up with the aesthetics of which particular project, but they could all pretty much go anywhere. Uh, And I can even take like this times I've taken, there's, there's a song by Ramallah called Oscar Cotton, which was actually a, a Citizen Saints song. Um, I just twisted it until it was kind of like a, a, a weird dirgy metal song. But the original one was just like pretty chords and like melodic. It's like, a, yeah, it, to me, I just write the song and then sort of assign it to whichever, whichever product project I think is, is the best for it. Would you say now, being that you've played music so much a lo- uh, length of your life, that you're thinking about ways to write new music, like, and I say new music, like try different things. Or are you like, for me and me and the G talk about this all the time. It's like, I just got this book the other day. That's just hardcore flyers from 1981 to 1984 in the Midwest. Like now that I'm now that I'm now the older I get, the more I'm like, let's go back in that. Let's go re let's revisit a lot of this. Do you find yourself revisiting shit that you once did for stuff that you would think about? Right. Or are you constantly thinking of, new ideas because i know you're you brought up knowing about morrissey and the smiths and i could as weird as that i think that you could put a roblin touch on some of that stuff in an aesthetic like and i always wonder if you've ever thought about taking music like that and putting it into your shit with thank you for saying that but um yeah like uh, there's no style the only thing i don't think i could probably do convincingly is probably like hip-hop like any style like i could usually play around with like this stuff that maybe tech like super technical metal i probably couldn't do the chops enough and I wouldn't care to either, but uh, I got tons of music. That's the whole problem. Like it, it, it's reached, you know, this, there are t- interesting like ideas, like things that I want. I would love to try in a perfect world. If I had my own studio and I knew how to run it and could just churn music out. Oh yeah. There's some weird ass shit I'd fuck with. Like utterly like what I think unprecedented, like just, collisions of sounds and like styles and stuff like that. Um, but I can't even get the stuff for the main bands, the crucial Bowling. stuff. Out. Yeah. Okay. So I would never touch that stuff. And I've also made t- stupid mistakes too. Like that, like Ramallah EP, the back from the land of Nod or whatever the fuck it was. That was never intended to be Ramallah. We were calling that thing black treasure gift in the studio. It was just some songs I had kicking around. Uh, black treasure gift being the exact opposite of white trash raw black treasure gift. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was like, ah, it's, it's kind of a cool name. But um, somebody at the like a lot of people at the last minute were like, call it Ramallah. It's got the best footprint. But that was just going to be three songs I threw out there. So we come back 
you know, Ramal's just really heavy, really tight. Comes back with this slithery sort of clutchish Sabbathy. You know, it just it was the wrong time for that. That should have been like an EP. Ramal should have come back at that point with like three nail bomb songs. And then those three songs be on the full length. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's yeah. been like misfires and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I would play around with a lot more screwy stuff. But if I can't even get the basic core stuff done, I'll never get around to touching like the weirder ideas I have. And where do you, where do you sit with? I know you said you have a lot of vengeance and like anger towards music. Where do you sit in the coming years? Do you think that you'll shift again, or where like where's your head at right now, and what's going on coming up for Rob besides the Nodcast, which I know you've been doing more often. Yeah. And I, I know you did the spoken word with Colin. This shit looked cool. I saw some videos. I just Are you good? Uh, I just did a Christmas one last week too. It was fun. It was fun. I love that shit. I love that shit. And I'm getting better at it in the sense that I'm getting better at how to run it. I did some music. I brought an acoustic guitar. The last one, I kind of petered out on that one. I got, came on real strong first half an hour, and I kind of uh, lost my thread a little bit because I had heard something right before we started that kind of derailed the whole Christmas thing. Somebody committed suicide, so I kind of kept talking about that it was kind of a bum out but i did some music and shit i love that shit i can do that shit in my sleep and i am going to continue doing that because i get a lot out of that because that's like the closest thing to redemption that i can have it it's 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 about recovery it's about mental illness and mental wellness addiction and recovery it's you know it's not like some uh tony robbins shit because it's pretty dark like a lot of dark stories and stuff but the overall thing is the overall vibe is positive but I will continue to do that. I have no intention of ever stopping doing that because I thought I get as much out of that as, as I ever did music, if not more so in some ways. I did, uh, I'm 300 pages into a piece of fiction that I did. Uh, I haven't written, I'm, I can't wait for that to be done. What'll happen to it? I don't fucking know, but I am going to put it out. As far as music itself, we tried it. We tried it. We tried to bring blood for blood back. It just sort of petered out. Now there's reasons for that. Somebody in, involved had something really bad happen to them. So that's, that's not the issue. Um, that's, that's not, it's that there's just always something like that. That's cloud following you right now. There's always a hammer that comes down with that. And it's, there's only so many times um, you can try to get some momentum going and it, it just burns out. And, um, and it causes me a great deal of distress. Like that's the thing. Like it really fucks me up. It'll drive me to drugs. I ain't letting nothing to drive me to drugs. So fuck the band. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's really it. Like I, I have a life and this is the other thing too, knowing how chaotic it is. I have a woman that I care for and want to do right by. I want to have a life with her. Music ain't going to give me that. You know what I'm saying? Like it just ain't never has never will. So I got to, there's, there's a point where you got to kind of get wise about it. You got to kind of get like, let's, let's look at this soberly without, the desires without the attachments, without that stuff. Look at this analytically. It is what it is. I find that you have a parallel thing to what happened with Paulie, where for a while he was doing Joe Coffee. Sheer terror to him was like deader than dead. The poisonous, probably. And then he, for all the, and he has a lot to say about MCA, the tours that were offered to Sheer Terror. And then he had the Joe Coffee, but he started doing a lot of spoken word. And I think that that kind of gave him a little sense. Like I see he was doing a couple, you know, Paulie doing spoken word. But I think for you, because you have this lived experience against addiction and what you said about Tony Robbins, the dark Tony Robbins, I actually think that you could talk to the people that can't be saved because they look at Tony Robbins as a complete and total bullshit artist. 
and it's it's a sale, you know, like he might as well be at two o'clock in the morning selling you a Ginsu knife. Yep. But you're the real article, you know, like you're, you're not coming from a place. I think that there's an avenue, not only cathartically, but emotionally, because you're subverting your ego. You're talking about things that are private and public. I think there's a way that you connect with your fans and you help people that might bring you full circle and heal some of the stuff still in you. And I think, I hope that you continue doing it because I think there's nothing cooler than seeing someone who can bear themselves. I mean, you did it with music, you did it with lyrics, and now you're doing it privately speaking with no music behind you. Yeah. I think that there's an impact that you can make this way. It, it It's turned into something beautiful too, because um, the people that have, have, have followed like, the videos, you're, you're right about something for certain. And, and, and I thank you for saying it, but I, I agree with it as well. Like I'm, I, I don't have anything to sell them with that. Yeah. I sell shirts and shit like that. Big fucking whoop. Um, but as far as the videos, they're free. Anybody can fucking watch them. And I'm not telling them anything. Like if you just follow my rules or if you just listen to my tapes that I'm selling, or if you just read my book, all will be well. No, I'm just living my life and navigating the same things in real time, the way they are. I have bad days where my fucking attitude is shit. Good days when I'm doing really well. That's that's what I think, you know, sort of resonates with people. Um, and I am going to continue. You can be sure I'm going to continue doing that until they throw the, the, the that's something I'm going to do until they throw dirt on me or until, um, uh, God forbid, I fuck up and, and go the other way again, which I have no intention to. To, to do so, but um, it, it's something, it's not just that I enjoy it immensely. I see the impact, like there's a Facebook group of all things, got about a thousand followers, but they meet in real life. They are part of each other's lives. And I, I'm not, I, I, the only reason I'm not using the word us, because it isn't us, but I didn't set this into motion. The group page, somebody threw up in my name and just made me an admin. People started congregating. They pay for each other's. They get each other into rehabs. They p- help each other with rent. They get people into the hospital. They find, you know what I mean? Like there's just like some fucking cool ass shit going on there. And I've had people kill themselves listening to my fucking music. If, if this is a way to make up for that, that type of thing, those kind of things that you don't have an answer for, are the people that reached out to me that I didn't get back to them in time and they fucking killed themselves. It's a redemptive thing and you know, it's amazing to watch. It's, it's like the ripple in the pond because I'm not directing that. I'm not controlling that. I'm not popping. I just throw the rocks in the water and, and they ride the waves. And that's fucking incredible to me. I also think that in the hardcore scene, because it's a truncated version of society oh, yeah. and someone like yourself comes out as, Oh, he's an addict. You almost, there's a pariah element here. And this is when you said redemption, it, it, this is it, you know, like you're not going to, you're not going to see Rob on the side of a show. Be like, can I get five dollars? You're the one making these, making these steps towards helping other people and you're pushing it forward. And not that you have a slate to clean or a public image to uphold, but I, I love hearing that you're pushing yourself forward, talking about things that were real to you because it will help. You know, it's like that water wheel, what you push down comes back around and it powers something else. And I think that that's a great way for people to see you as like, this is Rob now, you know, like, what are you going to say about before that's over? This is Rob now. I love hearing it, man. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I I just loved it. It, it, And I I talk about it all the time. I'm like, can you believe the the guy with the, uh, 
you know, I seek revenge society, fuck you and fuck your society too. And all this shit is saying all this like positive shit now. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's not, you know, the idea of spouting positive stuff, that sounds like an affectation. It's not, it's where life has driven me. It's just where I'm at. If I go dark again, trust me, you'll get the dark. Although to be fair, in certain mindsets, I don't, I don't do anything. I don't do videos or nothing because I don't want to spit any more acid out there if I can help it. Not in that way. Not in that way. If I get, if I, if I, you know, music's a different thing. That's a different art form or a medium or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But I try not to actually throw anything negative out there, but yes, it's not an affectation. I'm not doing it because, um, you know, I want to sell like a tracts or something like that. I do it because that's where I'm at. Anything I'm, Wherever I'm at at the moment, that's what you're getting. That's basically it. But so far, it's been an inherently positive thing. As ugly as some of the stories are, that just illustrates to the people that know, oh, this guy's not lying. I went through that too. Um, It's a bonding bonding point. You know, you go out there, and again, we go back to the Tony Robbins. He's in a clean suit. You know, he's got a fucking $10,000 watch on him. He's telling how you can be like me and go forward. It's like, we're not even on the same fucking planet, cuz. You know, like. There's no point has he lived like you have. And, and so there's no relation. So the minute you have these bonding points in these conversations with these people, you know, public speaking can be dogmatic and it could be pontification or it could be sharing your experience so they can, you know, reach out to you. And I think that that's the difference between when someone's coming from something real or someone's got a fucking VHS to sell. Hey, see me in the back. The VHS is $20. And that's what's going to make the experience of what you're doing more akin to the people that follow your music and respect your career or your, your art has touched them. Yeah. It's, it's been incredible. Like that. I, I was on my way down to the Jersey thing. It was like a, like a Christmas thing. Cause it, I knew it wasn't, I knew it was going to be a tough time of the year. Like four days before Christmas is not a great time to book something, but it's a bad time for the people I reach. A lot of the people I reach myself, the holidays were always the worst time of the year for me. If I'm in a bad place, I just wanted a, a way for people to congregate break out of whatever mindset they might've been in. And it was fucking awesome. And I was on my way down. I'm like, I'm a fucking musician going to speak to people without any music, though. I did bring a guitar. I didn't intend to use it. Um, and that, and, there, and there's people willing to actually show up and fucking listen, dude, I'm, I'm fucking blessed. I hate to use that word and it doesn't come easily or naturally off my tongue. And I don't know who I'm blessed, who or what I'm blessed by, because I don't know what I believe. I just, I am, I'm lucky. I'm grateful. Uh, I, I know so many people that daily, I still get word, not a week goes by where I don't hear two or three people popped off from usual shit, drugs, alcohol, s- stupid behavior and, and suicide. And now we're reaching the age where they're just popping off because of life. It's no longer yeah. stupidity anymore. Well, there's like a, it's a, it's a double edged sword. You're the guy who without music might've been dead by 21. Yeah. Or you're the guy who got the brightest song that touched the world. And this is your chance to continue on. That's what makes you feel blessed. You know, like um, the neighborhood we came from and the city we came, we talked about the show a million times. So people get tired of hearing me say it. Philly people go up the mountains or down the shore. That's all we go. <laughs> the fact that I, you know, when someone's like, I, I asked a, a cousin, he's like, you've been to Boston? I'm like, yeah, he's like, man, that's gotta be far. I'm like, how far do you think it is? He's like, I don't know, a thousand miles. Like, you know, like the concept of, of, of space to people who don't leave 10 city blocks. You know, I might as well said I've seen the fucking pyramids in Egypt when I went to fucking Boston. Yeah. And that's the thing that happens. So when people like us are able to even go anywhere, you know, like it's a magnitude further than 
the average person that we grew up with has ever done. And um, I know you did the thing in Trenton is what you're referring to, George Fox's 50th birthday. I tore my hamstring and was literally laying like a little baby. I'm, I'm like, listening. Keep going. Not that dear thing. I was laying like a little baby because I, I tore my fucking hamstring out. And I remember being like, well, how was it? You know, these are the things that I think you're going to start slowly being able to do. It also doesn't help that COVID's a thing. And so, you know, we're going to see a new Rob in the 2022. And I love hearing it, man. It's uh, for me, I've seen different hardcore guys try to go in a route of infecting people with positivity. And I don't think positivity raw works because people need to hear the dark side. They need to relate, you know? This, anything I'm doing happened utterly organically. The entire video thing and the, the, the people that have popped, propped up around that and what it turned into, it originally started because I was recording my thoughts in preparation to write them down as some part of some sort of larger thing of writing. I just played them for somebody and somebody was like, just put those up. So it was that meets news about music that never happened. You know, <laughs> oh, new yeah. album's coming. None of that happened. It just slowly morphed into this. I don't plan things well, but some they do take funny paths sometimes and end up places where I'm glad they did. Um, and this is one of them. And I'll say something else, Joe. Like, I know we'll probably wrap up shortly. Um, you've, you know, you've talked about my impact on this thing that we've been part of. You have kept this thing alive. I noticed the other day you you put you put something up about hey respect the fucking uh, fanzines. Uh, you put, I think you retweeted something from uh, No Echo. Yeah. Um, saying, respect these people. They're keeping this thing alive. You better fucking believe it because minus those things, nobody fucking cares. Um, it's why I always used to make a distinction when I was mocking Lamb Goat. I'd make a distinction between, I'm not mocking the people at Lamb Goat. They put their time into keeping bands relevant and putting news out there, keeping this whole thing alive. I'm mocking the subhumans on their message boards. That's who I'm mocking. Um, you have kept this thing alive as an event. I mean, I, I, I felt for a while that that was the single event that was keeping everything together, giving everybody a platform to play. And you are trustworthy as a promoter and you've been doing it for years. That's unfucking heard of. There's a few, but not many and nobody at your level. So Probably, I mean, that's, I, I'll get to say thank you. That it, it got me a little, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the thing for me is, so what do we do with this thing? What do you do? Do you like I, I pour concrete and I, I was on tour. Actually, it was a year after we toured together and I was in Europe and there were some bands we'll leave out of this conversation, but we're in that huddle of band guys waiting until we got to get out of the bullpen and play this European fest. And one of them is like, all we got to do is get this head PA or something like that tour. And I looked at him like, wait, wait, what? Like, oh, you know, this is like, there is no breaking out if you're shattered realm and the breakdowns come and you're saying kick, kick punch you motherfucker and all this dumb shit. <laughs> but we're Philly's a blue collar working class. And I had that Avenue to be a union concrete guy. And 15 years later, I can book a hardcore show. And if the show doesn't do well, my bills are paid and the bands can still get paid fair. And I love it. And there's like a, I tore the hamstring before Shadow Realm played on a Saturday, I took a day off of work. I ran a show. I, I went to the show. On, I went to work on the Tuesday. Ran a show at night. Got up in the morning. Worked. Worked a regular day. Went back and ran another show that Wednesday night. Because this is 
it have to have both paths. For me, I have to do shows because I love it and I love our culture. I love the people in it. Like, you know, I love everything about what this has given me. But to depend upon getting paid if a band does well or not changes the entire atmosphere of why I do it. And I'd rather keep the two things clean, man. That's why I do it. Literally, like if there's money, that's cool. But I don't walk into any show I've ever done going, well, this half is mine. I go, I want this show to continue because, like I said, this is a water wheel. A good show, new new people. It, it's all cyclical, and it gives me a lot more satisfaction than anything else I've ever done. That's the most important thing you said, too. Um, the fact that you still do this after already having a career that pays your bills that's everything. That's everything. Because so many wouldn't. They reach the point where, hey, I'm just living my life. I don't got time for this headache anymore. And what you said about keeping it going, the wheel and stuff like that, it's why I want to see every time I see like a hardcore band's tweet or post or anything, talk about their new record. I want to see 5,000 likes. I don't, I don't have any haterade in me with that shit. I want to see every single fucking band that I know or have anything to do with or has any anywhere near my orbit selling out clubs, killing it on fucking merch, because that's, that just means there's more there. It just means the whole thing's doing well. And honestly, I don't even like to think about what would happen if this is hardcore became extinct. Like that would be a blow to the East coast as like the entire music thing. Never mind, just like hardcore and punk. Uh, I, I've never said this stuff to you. So I'll hit it with, I'll, I'll get you while we're on front street and tell you all this stuff. Cause it's the truth. Like when I deal with you for anything, anytime I've dealt with you over the last years when it's really just me, I don't, I'm not suspicious. I, I know that we're going to, it's going to work. I know it's going to be what it was supposed to be. Like, I don't, I don't have to worry. I don't have to wait for the conversation that night. Like, Hey, listen, uh, everything I said is full of shit. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm leaving now. Like never happens. And I went to, uh, and again, thank you for all that. I think the problem with a promote, like there's the, the, the thing that we're dealing with in hardcore now not to derail away from your story is that the the hardcore scene has always been the this the small pool. So now the new baby uh, talent buyers who want to work at the big corporate are buying these hardcore shows up, and it makes it harder. But the only reason why I'm able to kind of navigate is not the two my own home, but March is 25 years of me booking shows. I have a relationship with a lot of bands. Oh, yes. I have good relationship with venues. But I have relationships with van, bands and venues because I keep my word. Yes. And I keep my word if it means I go out of pocket because what's money in the bank if no one takes you at your word? And that's what I learned in this whole process. And I know a lot of people that go on the other way. And I've dealt with a lot of people in recent times that they don't look at hardcore the way we do. They look at like this is just a numbers thing or, oh, well, you know, next time we book them, they'll play the bigger room. And it's really hard to deal with from a person. But it's like, and, I, and I've been asked, like, how come you don't, why would I want to work at a desk and be told by some corporate guy, this is what we have to do. And every deal, we have to squeeze every ounce of it out. It, it, it's too much. Book the band, treat them right, do the things for the right reasons, and the shows happen. Yes. And so I appreciate I appreciate the comments. Um, We've been going a long time, so I, I really want to make sure that we're not, not hitting on current things that you would want to tell people about. I mean, again, you you have such a fucking huge cultural impact. And it's a great that you said the skull tattoo. It's great that you hit all these points because I always say, especially this time of year, the, 
if the world play, if everybody played one one day of It's a Wonderful Life, there's no Rob Lind. There's a lot of things that never happened. That's a real thing. Like there's a lot of people you never touch. There's like- a lot of people. Like you know, like you remember the movie "It's a Wonderful Life." Oh yes, oh yes. That's like it's that's a that's a. I, I I watch it. I still get choked up at times. Oh yeah. But like for all your struggle and all your sacrifice, and the things that didn't work out with the band, there's an impact that you gave culturally, that is unmatched. Even though, like you said, how's that paying my fucking rent right now? Yeah. It, that's the fucked up part, isn't it? That's the fucked up part is. Sometimes what we give isn't something that we can see a financial return for. And I can, I can live with that. It's only at my, when I'm in a shitty headspace. I, I, and, and again, had I not made some of the choices or got caught up in some of the things that I got caught up in, I would have been able to maintain a living at this. After a yeah. certain point, I would have. It took a long time to get there, and it's nothing anybody out there should bank on ever doing themselves because it's a million and one shot. But there was a point where if you take – some of the aspects of my personality out of the thing, I would have just done the band thing for the next 20 years. And I would have been, you know, I'd be a touring musician and that would be it. That's you might have ended back up. You would end up in, like, I think like there's that thing or look at all the musicians, what happens? Oh yeah. Psycho. You know, like it's, it's, it's a pitfall that I think, you know, uh, what do they say? There are certain religions that believe like, they, the the all father pulls a strand out and this is how long your life is, you know, yes. the yes. same thing. The, the same normal. thing is at any point you're going to have to hit turbulence with addiction yeah. is I, unfortunately, I don't see, I don't There's see a path was under it. Like I'm bipolar and that was the underlying thing coupled with all the other stuff. So I was going to hit a crisis with that at one point or the other, I was managing it with, with alcohol it's just that the drugs that I got into, and it was only one drug. I was not a libertine. I didn't try, oh, let's try everything, man. Let's party. I got wrapped up in one other drug. So for me, it was alcohol and opiates in that order. Um, I sometimes, I'll tell you something though, Joe. I'm sometimes grateful that I got strung out. I know that sounds crazy, but I sometimes think if I didn't, I would still be drinking now, right now, if I was even alive to the same level I was because I had no intention of quitting that stuff. I was just li- that I was living as a functional alcoholic. And that was the most wretched, miserable time of my life. Opiates grind your life up real quick. They turn you into a machine and everything gets really fucked up really fast. But you don't really have time to be miserable in the conventional sense. You become like a machine. You become miserable when you don't have it for a while. That's when the misery sets in. But otherwise, you live in like this, like, like this machine. I sometimes am grateful for the opiates because they ground my life up so fast that I had to acknowledge Dude, you can't fuck with any of this shit. You're just not capable of doing it. And that forced me to acknowledge, well, that means you're going to have to deal with all the childhood shit and deal with all the fucking mental illness shit. It was like a chronology like or a cascade of events. And it led me to a place where I'm, I'm living in a better spot. But you're right. Yes, if I hadn't fucked things up, I might have been lived as just like a touring musician and done that thing. Well, first of all, it's very boring. Um, I would have started writing shitty records after a certain point because I'd have nothing oh, to worry about except being on tour. Second, you're right. It, I wouldn't have been a successful musician without the very impulses that later drove me to get high and fucked up or semi-successful in this thing, in this thing. I know in, in this world it had some impact and I'm grateful I was able to do that. That's something you, to do with your life. If I reached even one person and I know I did, it was worth it. All the other headaches were worth it. So I actually just, I talked myself out, out of my bit of state 
while we were talking here tonight. Go ahead, man. I mean, and the truth is, I'm not bitter about it. I get frustrated. And I truly have reached a point where I, I don't think I, I have to drive to even try to do it. Because if I'm not going to do it right, I'm not going to do it at all. So I have reached that point, but I'm not bitter about it. It's just a binary choice. Do I want to be happy? Do I want to keep beating my head against a wall? I think I want to be happy. So that's it, it's not a it's not a tragic thing or it's not a, you know, there's no, uh, you know, venom with it. Say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again the same way and expecting a different result blood and, for blood and so if if this isn't if this isn't going to make it happy then you got to go a different path and yeah you know there's a, always a fan level selfishness where it's like well, what about it's like sometimes it's not about you like sometimes it's about what do you what do you like what does this what does this music mean to you what does this band mean to you and i've seen it firsthand what this art you created did for people and i just really appreciate you taking the time I, I was glad that we finally got you on the show you're on like the you are on like the uh i would say 10 people i was always hoping to get on the show and i'm glad i didn't do you within the first year or so so it took us a while for the quality and just i had to learn how to be a better interviewer and i'm glad i didn't i'm glad it hit you up too soon because this is already one of my favorites not only just because of the subject matter, but because we're close enough to have these kind of conversations. Oh yeah. And I just really appreciate you being honest and respectful. And again, this is a, this has been a, like for me, every time I do a show, it's about positivity is I hate, I always hated that 90 zine. What band do you think sucks? And then they sell, Hey, this guy from Blood for Buds said your band sucks. It's always been whack. <laughs> your story, your, your story is absolutely what people need to hear to understand your music, understand the bands, understand the entire timeline. And I know when you're like, what topics I'm like, we're just going to kind of go. And I'm so glad that we had this opportunity. I would, um, I, I can't thank you enough, Joe. And I, I would, I have, if you ever want to do this again, I have some ideas for some fun shit. Um, I, I love a part two. I always want to have a part two. I always want to bring people back. Literally. I'm always episode, down. We should do an episode of hardcore reminiscences where we reminisce things that were embarrassing that we all did. Um, things, that, you know, Foolish trends within hardcore, like Jenko pants when everybody got in the big pants war and tried to get bigger and bigger. <laughs> I a, love it. Kind of fun shit we could do with that. Um, but I, I, I want to say uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm not going to uh, – the only thing I'm going to plug is this. Plug uh, anything you want. I always put everything into our show notes too. So yep. every link you have, I always put it TIACpodcast.com. But anything oh. you say, I always want people to plug. Like, I don't care. I love a plug. I want people to always check up. And people, the only thing I always stay respectful of is if you don't want someone to know, if you're like, there's guys with their own Instagram. Like, I don't, I don't take requests. If you no, want people I, to reach I, I, out, I, I, we always, yeah. Like, whatever I, you put I, out there, I put on the internet. I appreciate it. I normally don't plug anything like I did Um uh podcast a few weeks ago with uh kenzo shibata he's like an old hardcore guy wicked good dude i went on there and they said you know the other guys were kind of giving a update on what they were doing and kenzo said is there anything you want to plug and i was like no i was like it, it, because this is the thing like if anybody's interested they'll look um if they're not i'm not going to convince them and i don't really want to convince anybody but i'll say this though uh because this is worth it if anybody out there is struggling with any of the stuff we've talked about, it doesn't have to be just alcoholism, addiction, any demon that's driving you to live in a way that you, you can't handle it. You're not dealing with it. You know, uh, mental illness, any of those things, 
if you're struggling, uh, you can check out the videos. Perhaps you get something out of them. Uh, they're on YouTube. I, I got them titled the channels White Trash Rob's Nodcast. That's what I call it. But I just call the thing Nodcast because I'm kind of phasing out the white trash thing. Uh, just because I don't want to, I don't want anybody to misconstrue in this day and age. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want anybody to think I'm selling some some ugly shit. Um, so I've been phasing that out. But it's called the Nodcast. Check it out. And uh, if you need some support, go on Facebook. We're going to open one up on Discord too. It's called, it's a group called Team No Head in the Oven. Team No Head in the Oven. It's a bunch of people grappling with similar stuff. And let me tell you, there is genuine support there. It's not just a goddamn message board. It's a real place where real people meet. So if you're having a hard time with any of the things I just I mentioned before that came up during this thing, or anything at all for that matter, if it's really causing you distress, and you're struggling with it, don't be alone. That's all. That's all I wanted to plug. Oh, man. Thank you for coming on the show again. My brother, you did so well. And, and I love that we had this time. And it will definitely be a part two. We'll definitely bring it back. We'll get on some, some, some things that aren't so critical or deep to get into, and we'll have fun. Fuck yeah, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a blast. No, nah, man. Thank you so much. I've said this before. I really hope that you all enjoyed that for me, not only as a fan, but a friend and someone who has had the opportunity to work with Rob. It is a special thing that he did today by sharing a lot of the inner workings. And he was one of these guests that I knew timing would be key to get him. And also I wanted this story to be clear and free of some of the bullshit drama, the internet stuff, and really get to the core of who he is. It's good to talk about Blood for Blood and Ramallah, but I think the story and the and the thing that was most interesting was him, his influences, his struggles, his overcoming the struggles. And I hope that those of you who are going through or have gone through similar things can relate to what he was talking about. And we absolutely will reoccur and bring Rob back on had a really good time talking to him. And again, as somebody who I hung out with every single day, I think we had like a five-week tour. And it was just awesome. And it was great to talk to my friend again. Make sure to go to his links, support what he's up to. If you have the opportunity to go see one of his spoken word things, check it out. And just thank you to Rob for coming on the show. Back to what I said in the beginning of the episode. Make sure to support people in with these GoFundMes. I mean, this isn't some guy who fell down the steps and broke their fucking leg. You know, Mark Fumi Mouth is fighting cancer. Roger's dealing with cancer. Eddie Leeway is back in the hospital once again because of chemo treatments and the infections and all this stuff. This is stuff that happens, man. And as our, you know, the, you know, the, especially in Roger's case, this is like the godfather of so much of hardcore, you know, and same thing we said for um, Leeway and Eddie. These are people that are integral to the path that we would eventually walk onto and in their hour need we need to support. So make sure you do that. And there will be links in the show notes at tihcpodcast.com for all of the things, the links, etc. Also, philly8cshows.com, easiest way to check out what we got going on. And of course, see you all at the FYA pre-show. Don't worry, I'll be in Florida, but 
We've got a great episode ready for next week. And just thank you for supporting in 2020, 2021. And I hope that we all started 2022 off the proper way. Listen to my brother Rob and his amazing life. Thank you so much.